Welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well, and of course, If you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. And all right, folks, we have a very special treat for you today. Joining the Raw Attitude Podcast for the very first time, he is the host of WrestleMania Salvation right here on the Questionable Endeavor Network, and he is none other than Sal. So, Sal, would you care to tell the Raw Attitude Podcast fans about WrestleMania Salvation and why they should be listening to it? Absolutely. First, thank you for having me, Henry. Of course. It's been a joy. I've been listening since episode one, so this is really I'm really excited for this. I'm glad to hear it. Glad to have you on. And WrestleMania Salvation is podcast off of the rundown feed, so you could call it like a sub podcast where we chronologically go through the history of WrestleMania. Uh every now and then I do have a guest host. But if I do or I don't, I'll give you the rundown on everything that happened that year at WrestleMania, <laughs> from the celebrities that showed up to some of the high-profile matches, and to some of the things that went wrong. And right now, we had just released episode 12, you know, probably about a week or so ago at this point, two weeks. And we're currently working on episode 13, which, of course, was from Chicago, WrestleMania 13. Yes, indeed. I think, if I'm not mistaken, at the time, it was the least-bought WrestleMania of all time. Which is kind of funny when you fast forward to WrestleMania 14, which obviously we covered on this show, because that's quite the turnaround from WrestleMania 13 to WrestleMania 14 in terms of the business they were doing when you had Mike Tyson in the uh, in the main event there. Definitely, Mike Tyson provided a bump. I think a lot of it had to do with the momentum WCW had going into 1997, mm-hmm. so that a lot of people who were watching wrestling were prim- you know primarily buying WCW events and. WrestleMania 13's card didn't look good on paper, especially to the pay-per-view buyer, but I'll tell you this, that Stone Cold Steve Austin Bret Hart match was one for the ages. Absolutely. And on the note of WCW, I'm pretty sure, in terms of WrestleMania 13, whatever WCW's pay-per-view was that month in March of 97, I think WCW's pay-per-view outsold WrestleMania that month, which is a first, and I'm pretty sure the only time that's happened for a for a WrestleMania against WCW, I should say. But yeah, whatever whatever the pay-per-view is, uncensored, I don't know, WCW actually had a higher buy rate than WrestleMania 13. So you could really tell the straights they were in at the time. Yeah, I believe it was Spring Stampede. Oh. And if I'm correct, I, I you know, NWO was running hot at that point, man. So of course it was going to do good business. Absolutely. And, and also, actually, as a quick plug for WrestleMania Salvation, I, of course, was on... Uh, the episode where you did WrestleMania 7. So I'll give another shout-out to that episode because that was a lot of fun. I mean, Sergeant Slaughter as an Iraqi sympathizer, what could possibly go wrong aside from (laughs) everything? 
<laughs> but yeah, that's actually it's a good tie-in too because we had Adam on the previous episode. He's also on the Rundown feed with Nitromania. So if you subscribe to the Rundown feed, you get Nitromania and you get WrestleMania Salvation, and of course the main Rundown show as well. And uh, I think also the Slasher Sanitarium you get there. You, uh, you on don't the get the Slasher Sanitarium on the Rundown feed. That's on its well, own. That's feed. separate. Yep. But you do get NXT Revisited, where Troy takes a look at all of the old NXT episodes before the network came out. And you get um, Glowstick, where he repre- uh, he reviews the uh, next, I'm sorry, the Netflix series Glow. There you go. Which I assume will actually probably be coming back uh, pretty soon. Season 2, I would yes. imagine. I think they, they did agree to release Season 2, and I think that's coming in a couple months. I don't know why I haven't watched that yet, but I definitely plan on doing so. Same. It's on my playlist. So, all right. Well, here we are at episode number 52. And wait a minute. Wait a minute. 52 episodes? Now, wait. Since I cover one episode of Raw per week, that means that the Raw Attitude Podcast has now covered one full year of Monday Night Raw in the Attitude Era. And since there is now a pretty good sample size of this podcast, it is with that in mind that I am now announcing that we have officially put up a Patreon account, patreon.com slash rawattitudepodcast, and of course I'll put the link to it in the episode description as well. So basically, if you like this show and you want to help keep it going and support it, you now have a way of doing so. And Sal, I'm going to quickly outline the different pricing tiers for you, if you don't mind. Would, would that be all right? Oh, this is breaking news by all means. Breaking news, yeah. So tier one, that's your Dwayne Gill level. You pledge a dollar, you get a shout-out on an episode of the show. Easy enough. Tier 2, that would be your D'Lo Brown level. If you pledge $5, you get access to future bonus episodes. And what I'm specifically thinking of doing is running commentaries with guest hosts, maybe for the 99 Rumble match and halftime heat. So, of course, you also get a shout-out on every episode of the podcast going forward as well. Tier 3, that's your Undertaker level. So you pledge $10, you get the bonus episodes, you get a shout-out on every episode, and you get what I call the Attitude Era Encyclopedia, which is essentially the scripts for every episode of this podcast. Now, Sal, the WWE Encyclopedia, which was put out by the WWE themselves and covers their entire history, that book is 400 pages long. So would you care to guess how many pages my Attitude Era Encyclopedia is so far? Uh, Let's see here. 52 episodes. I'm going to guess maybe 600 pages. You're pretty close, actually, but you went a little short. It is 670 pages, and we are not even in 1999 yet. So it is so far 670 pages covering December 97 to December 98. So, of course, you'll get the additional scripts going forward as well if you pledge that amount, so you'll get every single one going forward. That's what you get for 10 bucks. Worth every goddamn penny, in my opinion. And finally, your Tier 4 level, that's your Stone Cold Steve Austin level. For 25 bucks. You get the Attitude Encyclopedia, the bonus episodes, the shout-out on every episode of the podcast, and you get to pick the episode. So that's right, you make the call, and just to be clear, you cannot skip ahead on the podcast timeline, because that would, you know, kind of defeat the purpose of the show. However, literally everything else in history is up for grabs, so you can have me review any wrestling show any other point in time. You can also have me review any content that a wrestler participates in, for example, a movie, TV show, album, etc. And to be clear, that episode will go up on the regular feed, so all the listeners will receive it. So there you have it. Those are your four levels. And Sal, now that those are there, uh, with that in mind, uh, how much will you be donating? Well, if it means that you will review every single lyric of the Terry Funk CD that he released (laughs) in Japan... 
then oh, I God. might just have to donate twenty dollars. Oh my God! What have I gotten myself into? <laughs> Honestly, that's that's breaking news for me. I didn't know Terry Funk had a CD. It was only released in Japan, and uh, from what I heard, it actually sold pretty well. Wow. Well, he's a hardcore legend over there, so I guess uh, I guess I could see that being relatively popular. I'm wondering if it was like country songs. I would picture Terry Funk would be a country guy. Uh, Japanese techno pop. I'm making uh, that up, but you never know. Okay. <laughs> Uh, you know what? I would have believed it. I would have believed it. So there you go. Yes, you can have me review that, or you could have me review uh, a- anything else if you want to. So so there you go. All right, but with that being said, Sal, are you ready to get into the show? No. I said, are you ready? <laughs> Good segue. But of course, the, uh, before we get into Raw, though... There was a pay-per-view to cover the night before, and that was Rock Bottom In Your House, the 26th pay-per-view under the In Your House banner. So what do you say, Shell? Shall we take... (laughs) That was Tongue Twister. What do you say, Sal? Shall we take a quick detour into Rock Bottom? Uh, Absolutely. Fantastic. However, before we can even get into Rock Bottom, we must first discuss what happened on the live episode of Sunday Night Heat, which aired before the show. So he began with Vince McMahon coming out and cutting a promo where he insulted the fans, and then, awesomely, he unfurled two gigantic banners by the entrance area, which showed The Rock holding the WWF Championship. Very fitting, I'd say, considering the pay-per-views named after him. And then our first match of the evening was WWF light heavyweight champion Dwayne Gill defending his title against Matt Hardy. And if you look at Matt these days, you'll probably think it's a bit funny he was challenging for the light heavyweight title at some point. But, I mean, it's been almost 20 years. Cut the guy some slack. So, anywho, Dwayne once again managed to successfully defend his title with the help of the Blue Meanie as Meanie hit a DDT on on Matt behind the ref's back. And Dwayne then picked up the pinfall to retain his title. And after that, we got footage from earlier today where Michael Cole was interviewing The Rock in a skybox... But he ended up being ambushed by mankind, and Foley then proceeded to beat up Rock all around the skybox, including mocking him by hitting him with various objects, such as a corporate table and a corporate rhododendron. Pretty funny. We then cut live backstage where a trainer was checking on the Rock, and he diagnosed the people's champ with broken ribs. So the trainer says that Rock can't wrestle tonight, and Rock says that he agrees with that decision, so he tells Vince McMahon to go explain to Mankind that there will be no match tonight. Instead, however, Mankind then comes to the ring holding the contract for tonight's match, and let's hear what Mick has to say. Doctor's apparently telling The Rock he will be physically unable to compete tonight. It is a happy day. Because Vince, I have an early Christmas present for you right here. You see, Dad, you taught me very well. You taught me to read the fine print. And the fine print of this contract says that if The Rock should fail to wrestle tonight for any reason, the title becomes mine, mine, oh mine! How about that news? Something, no, that's wrong. Dad, maybe you'd like to play Let's Make a Deal if you'd like me to erase that little clause in my contract then maybe you and I 
should have a father-to-son talk. What will it be, Dad? Will it be what's behind door number one? Or what's standing behind the lovely Carol Merrill behind the curtain? It's all up to you because, Vince, you and I both know that you have something I want. Have a nice day! So there you have it. Mankind jumped the rock from behind and injured him, and now Rock must defend his title, despite the fact that he has a huge disadvantage going into the match. So, Sal, uh, who's the heel and who's the face here again? It's kind of kind of strange reverse booking, isn't it? Slightly difficult to uh, determine that based on the actions of one mankind. Although I did appreciate that during that promo... He says if The Rock is unable to wrestle, that the title will become mine, all mine. Yes, exactly. Very nice touch there. So yes, I guess I guess that's the stipulation, but maybe not, because as Mick also said in the promo, he may be able to make some sort of deal with Vince before the match. So I guess I guess we'll see how that plays out. So uh, we then kicked note, into our oh yeah, please. Quick note from the uh, beginning part of the Sunday Night Heat episode. First of all, that was not a young Matt Hardy. That was a young Matt Jackson from the Young Bucks. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, judging by the outfits they were wearing. Judging by the outfits they were wearing, I swear to God, the Young Bucks traveled to, back in time to 1998 just to have a match on Sunday Night Heat. <laughs> or you could maybe say they stole their look from the Hardys all those years ago. Oh, well, that's a guarantee. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, I had forgotten about the George and Adam skits. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. That was a bunch of hot garbage. Yeah, not to mention the uh, Attitude Era cologne ads that they've been doing. Ooh, de toilette. Yes. Oy. Yeah, those guys have basically been MIA since the new generation. But hey, I guess, you know, we got to we gotta trot them out for something. We've kept them in storage, and we have these this uh, shitty cologne that we want to sell. So hey, why not? George and Adam, bring it on, I guess. Also, did you catch the commercial after Mankind's promo? I did not. It was a commercial for the new Jesse the Body Ventura documentary. Oh, yes, yes. They showed that during Raw as well, actually. Which I thought was very interesting because it, it segues into Ventura and the WWF mending fences and, and him becoming kind of like back with the company in, in middle of 1999. Yes, indeed. Specifically at SummerSlam, which right. we'll eventually get to, I suppose. But yeah, I actually, it's funny you mentioned that because when I saw that ad for the Jesse Ventura VHS tape, I, I looked it up. And I saw some reviews on Amazon, and basically it was just kind of like a quick cash grab that they did, because it was basically just, you know, um, I mean, Ventura's only been the governor, it was about a month ago he was elected, so they kind of haphazardly put this video together where they put in some old footage, and it was like um, a couple guys, I think like classy Freddie Blassie, just, you know, giving sound bites about Jesse Ventura, but uh, the reviews on Amazon were not very kind. Well, that doesn't surprise me, but of course Vince would capitalize off of him being named governor. Of course, of course. So we then kicked into our next match, Brian Christopher versus Kevin Quinn. Yes, that's right. Sunday Night Heat is bringing back the jobbers, or at least that's what I thought when I saw that some dude named Kevin Quinn was wrestling, but, well, not quite the case here. The match ended when Brian Christopher picked up Quinn and seemingly went for a powerbomb, and I think Kevin was supposed to squirm out of it and turn it into a sunset flip, but instead he literally fell flat on his face when he tried to escape. And from there he had to play it off like he didn't fuck up tremendously, grab Christopher's leg, and roll him up for the pinfall. It looked fucking horrible, but nonetheless, Kevin fucking Quinn ends up getting a victory on a pay-per-view pre-show. 
did not see that coming. Did you notice that botch, Sal? I did. It How was, could you not, right? It was almost as bad as this quote-unquote angle they're playing up between Brian Christopher and Scott Taylor. Right. It's almost like a pre-dated Billy and Chuck. Yep. Oh, the attitude error. How I've missed oh, it. Oh, yes. Yep. Ugh. So now we just saw a huge upset there, Kevin Quinn defeating Brian Christopher. Would there also be an upset in our next match when Triple H went one-on-one against Draws? Fuck no. No, (laughs) obviously not. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Hunter won in less than two minutes with a pedigree. But after the match, Commissioner Shawn Michaels emerged from backstage along with Ken Shamrock and the Big Boss Man. HBK declared that DX would be barred from ringside later tonight when the Outlaws put their tag team titles on the line against Shamrock and Bossman. And even further than that, if any DX member shows up during the match, the Outlaws will be stripped of the titles right on the spot. And HBK then attempted to stack the deck even further by saying that the Outlaws would also have a warm-up, excuse me, a warm-up match a little bit later on Sunday Night Heat as well. And you know you're getting your money's worth for a show when Billy Gunn is doing double duty. And from there, Michael Cole then interviewed Jeff Jarrett and Deborah in the ring about tonight's strip tease match. So Double J said he's going to defeat Goldust later on, so there's no way that Deborah will be showing the goods tonight. In fact, he's so confident, he tells Deborah to give the fans a sneak peek of what they're not going to see later. So she unbuttons her shirt a little bit and shows off some cleavage. Translation, if you haven't already bought the pay-per-view, do it now, you horny sex-starved virgins. And finally, we had our Sunday Night Heat main event, the New Age Outlaws taking on their mystery opponents, the Acolytes. And as it turns out, the match basically ended up being a setup because after only a few minutes, Ken Shamrock and the big boss man ran down to ringside and started beating up the Outlaws, resulting in a disqualification. Interestingly, though, The Acolytes didn't appear to take too kindly to the corporation interfering because they then started brawling with Shamrock and Bossman. That allowed DX to escape and head backstage, leaving the Acolytes and corporation behind in the ring. However, while they're fighting, the lights go out and The Undertaker's music plays. We then get another voiceover promo where he claims that he will end his rivalry with Stone Cold Steve Austin tonight when he buries him alive, and then... Lightning strikes the cemetery setup they have near the entranceway, and that is how we go off the air. So, Sal, what do you think? Does that make you want to call your local cable company and order Rock Bottom? I'm a dumb mark, so that that totally hooked me. Uh, <laughs> I I, lo- I personally like the Undertaker's voiceover at the end of that uh, lights going out. I liked his voiceover at the previous episode of Raw when he had really? Austin on the um, the T symbol. Yeah. Um, and he said he had taken a mind, body, and soul. I know it's a little bit campy, but I, I, I enjoy that shit. Yeah, I would have liked that probably a little bit more if it wasn't occurring during the quote-unquote crucifixion, but is what it is. But yeah, I thought that was a pretty effective end to Sunday Night Heat where you get the lightning strike and it will not be the, the last explosion we see on this on this show involving The Undertaker, so stay tuned for that. But yeah, I totally agree. It probably It probably would have hooked me too, but I mean... I know that I was already ordering that pay-per-view anyway, so... Also, this bears mentioning, because I wasn't on the last episode of The Wrap, so The mm. Undertaker crucifies, essentially, Steve Austin on the T-symbol. Indeed. Probably maybe less than just a few months after Raven and his flock crucified the Sandman. 
mm. in ECW. Just thought so, I'd point that out there because WWF at this time is full of stealing things from other companies. Yeah. They didn't quite go the the same route as uh, the Crucifixion ECW. That was a lot more brutal. Uh, that, because... that was a lot more controversial. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, wasn't Kurt Angle in attendance that night? He was thinking of like signing with ECW at that point. And when Kurt... he saw that, he was like, uh, fuck no. Kurt Angle was a special guest of Paul Heyman. He was in attendance. He's fresh off his gold medal. And... Nobody knew that they were going to do that, supposedly. Mm-hmm. Right. But even Raven said Paulie definitely knew that they were going to do it. Uh, yeah. So for those who hadn't seen it, they put Sandman up on a legit crucifix, not a T-symbol. And then instead of a crown of thorns, they gave him a crown of barbed wire. Yep. So uh, Kurt Angle stormed out of the arena uh, saying to Paul Heyman that he's a Christian. How could he do this? Mm-hmm. And that was the last Kurt Angle ever stepped foot in ECW. Indeed it was. And I think he also threatened him with legal action as well, he, if like he, he was shown on the show, broadcast. If you show me on this broadcast, I will sue you. Yep. But, I mean, hey, pretty effective angle. And, you know, I think, wasn't Blue Meanie one of the people crucifying him? Probably. Oh, yeah, because Blue Meanie was part of Raven's Nest, absolutely. Yeah, and look what happens. Blue Meanie shows up in the WWF, and then two weeks later we get a crucifixion. I, I feel like it's the Meanie orchestrating all of these crucifixions. Yeah, either that or we should have known back then that Paul Heyman was on the take. Right. <laughs> also, probably the only time that anyone in ECW actually issued a formal apology, because Raven had to go out there later that night and trip over his words where he was like, I know I offended people with my use of religious iconography. So I think that's probably the only time ECW ever actually issued a legitimate apology. So I guess some people in the back uh, of the ECW locker room were also offended. And they were like, oh, you just did that because you and Paulie are Jewish. Uh, Oh, Raven is. Yeah, that's right. To which Raven responded, well, we can't put him on a Jewish star. We'll just roll away. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Raven. He makes he makes a valid point. He makes a valid. Point. He's so Raven. Oh, EC fucking W. But that's that's crucifixion. ECW. That's that's hardcore right there. That is hardcore. Anywho, but with all that being said, are you ready to get into rock bottom? Yes. Then let us do it. It is Sunday, December thirteenth, nineteen ninety eight, and we are live from General Motors Place in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, in front of a whopping twenty thousand forty two fans. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include, well, just an episode of Raw in May of 2000. Those are literally the only two times the WWF has ever come to General Motors Place, which honestly sounds more of like a vague description than an arena name. Like, uh, you know, that, that, that General Motors Place, you know the one. Very, very kind of obscure place. That's the best you can do. Whatever. So we open the show with footage from one day prior when WWF champion The Rock walked around Vancouver's Planet Hollywood restaurant, remember when those were popular, and welcomed us to his pay-per-view. He states there will be more shows coming up in the future which will also bear his name, including Rock Solid, Rock and Roll, and perhaps most accurately, Lay in the Smackdown. So he was pretty close on that one, actually. And from there, we kick into one of those classic Freddie Blassie pay-per-view narrations where he says, quote, Neither wind, nor rain, nor fire will deter The Undertaker, so apparently he's an employee of the U.S. Postal Service. And after that, we segue into the pyro and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs in the crowd tonight include HBK is a sellout bitch, The Cox says, I steal cable, K 
Kane Dewey, oh, he'll sell. I'm better looking than you. Vince plus Shane equals poop shoot. Kane is the blue blazer. I'm blocking the guy behind me. China is my girlfriend. That one's actually just kind of sad. Val Venus has no balls. Sable, two words. Hot tub. Boobs make me smile. And on a related note, I came to see some titty. Don't sell the elbow. Americans are fat, lazy slobs. And another rather lengthy sign. Do you smell what the rock is cooking? It's his own shit, and Vince eats it. So, Sal, were there any you saw that I missed? You had mentioned pretty much all of them that I had (laughs) written down, except for there was a sign that said Mark with an arrow pointing downward. (laughs) And there was Well, that goes without saying. (laughs) And there was also a sign that said Bottom Feeder 316. Nice. All right. I wonder if that's a shot at Stone Cold or if that guy is just saying he himself is a bottom feeder. <laughs> I would assume that guy himself is a bottom feeder. There you, well, yeah, that, that's also probably a fair bet. So when the show begins, we get a pan of the arena where we see the open grave with a giant pile of dirt next to it in preparation for the Buried Alive match between Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker. Now, there is an actual tombstone next to the grave as well, which Michael Cole tells us weighs approximately 3,000 pounds, a figure which I highly doubt. Not only should you highly doubt it, I feel like he changed that number as the broadcast went on. (laughs) <laughs> he said 1,000, he said 3,000, come on. By the end of the night, it was 10,000. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we actually then kicked into our first match of the evening, and it was a tag team encounter, Val Venus and the Godfather, accompanied by Four Hoes, versus Mark Henry and D'Lo Brown, and not to be outdone, D'Lo is now accompanied by Terry Runnels and Jacqueline. And sure enough, having all those women at ringside ended up, being, ended up being a problem during the match because, you know, Vince Russo booking and bitches be crazy. Terry and Jackie went to confront the hose, so the Godfather and D'Lo Brown proceeded to separate them, but this distracted referee Jimmy Corderas. Meanwhile, with Val and Henry alone back in the ring, Jacqueline snuck in behind Val, pulled down his trunks to expose his black thong... Slapped Val in the face, and then Henry followed up from there with a clothesline and a big splash to give the win to the team of Mark Henry and D'Lo. So let it be known that in a match which featured six women at ringside, the person who got their thong exposed was Val Venus. Did not expect that, but Sal, what did you think of this opener? It was forgettable. (laughs) Um, True. And also, I am sad that they don't actually officially call... Uh, Val Venus and the Godfather supply and demand. Mm-hmm. They should. They should. And, Henry, I'm not sure if you noticed, when D'Lo and Mark Henry made their way to the ring, they had some type of, you could tell it was like generic, you know, create a wrestler number three music. <laughs> I'm going to say that's not the music that was on the live broadcast. Oh, really? Interesting. I vaguely remember the broadcast, and I, I think that's a network special for us. For some reason, I thought it was the... I think you better recognize I think, theme song. I think that's what it was, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was what D'Lo was using, though, wasn't it? Yeah, so I'm wondering, did they like just lose the rights to it for that show, or did they just not oh. pay that one bill? Oh, I see. So you're saying they didn't actually play that song when they came down. That's correct. Oh, I thought they did. Okay, never mind. No, wow. It was a generic uh, version of that song, but they didn't say, I think you better recognize. Huh. That is kind of strange. Maybe it was a one-night-only theme. 
But uh, oh, we're going to get into different theme songs tonight. That's for sure, because there's a there's a notable one on this very pay per view, which I'm sure you noticed as well. Of course. But um, we'll we'll touch on that in just a bit. Uh, also, real quick, the um, it is good to see the beginnings of PMS here with Terry and Jackie. Uh, this is the what? Are you, what are you talking about? You're <laughs> saying that they are? <laughs> are you saying they're suffering from something? I'm saying that uh, this is the quintessential creative has nothing for you. <laughs> Yeah. Also, yeah, sticking them also with with Mark Henry and Dilo was a strange choice. Also, after the match, I was very surprised to see in this timeline on your show that Doc Hendricks is still employed. Oh God, handsome Doc! I just can't like I can't get over the fact that you do this with Michael P.S. Hayes. Like that's what you have him do. Like put on a, a radio announcer voice. And be like, hey, handsome doc, selling cardboard cutouts. Now, it's cheap plug so for the WrestleMania Salvation show. I have been seeing Michael Hayes portrayed as Doc Hendricks for the past couple episodes. Oh. And I still don't get it. I didn't get it back then. Why would you change Freebird Michael Hayes' name and pretend like he's not Michael Hayes? Right. I... <laughs> Maybe Vince is like, well, you know, you were famous over in WCW as Michael P.S. Hayes, but no one knows who you are in the WWF, so we're gonna we're gonna make you Doc Hendricks. That's awful. I I agree. It's fucking atrocious. Although I'm pretty sure I don't know if it was at a WrestleMania, but I'm pretty sure he appeared as Michael P.S. Hayes in the WWF for a little while. I think with the Freebirds, maybe for like a show or two, but. Well, you would know if it was WrestleMania 1, I suppose, because you saw WrestleMania 1. at a WrestleMania with the Freebirds, so maybe it was a SummerSlam. It must have been, yeah, it must have been another episode, or another, um, maybe it was like the Wrestling Classic or one Actually, of those. Actually, in your timeline, he he does ditch the Doc Hendricks persona pretty soon, because he becomes That's a true. manager. I, I wonder which team. I guess we'll just have to stay tuned and, and figure that out as well. We'll have to figure that out, exactly. Yeah, but, yeah. Jesus Christ, Doc, Doc fucking Hendricks. And, now, and I'm looking this up now, too, just to see if I can remember uh, where he was with the WWF, but uh, eh, I can't find it. It's going to take me too long. to. Find. Oh, no, here we go. In 1984, the Freebirds had a brief stint in the WWF, but left when management wanted to split them up. So there you go. 1984 oh, so pre, or Pre-WrestleMania, wow. Pre, Pre-Mania. So anyway, speaking of tag teams like the Freebirds, our next match was yet another tag team affair. The Headbangers versus Oddity's members Kurgan and Golga, accompanied by Luna Vachon and Giant Silva. And once again, getting into the theme songs, when the Oddities come to the ring, if you're watching on the WWE Network, we get the terrible overdubbed theme song. So I assume that means the Oddities are still using their insane clown posse theme, even though ICP turned on them and brutally attacked them a few weeks ago. I guess they're willing to let bygones be bygones since it's such a catchy tune. So the finish of the match came when Thrasher made a blind tag to Mosh, which Golga did not see. From there, Golga bounced off the ropes to hit Thrasher with the Earthquake Splash, but in the meantime, the freshly tagged Mosh had climbed the turnbuckles. He then jumped off the top rope and hit Golga with a horribly botched move. I think it was supposed to be a seated senton, but instead it just ended up looking like Mosh and Golga collided, with Golga then just falling right onto his back like a turtle. Despite that shittiness, however, it didn't stop Jerry Lawler from exclaiming, What a move! And more importantly, it ended up being enough for Mosh to score the three count, giving the surprisingly clean victory to the Headbangers. But then, immediately after the match ended, 
we had some strange shenanigans occur. So Mosh rolled outside the ring where a fan then reached over the railing and shoved him, to which Mosh responded by walking up to him and spitting in his face. Referee Tim White then attempted to restrain the headbangers from going after the fan, and thankfully they did indeed head backstage after that. Pretty crazy stuff. And as a side note, I think Vancouver wrestling fans in the late 90s and early 2000s had a bit of a reputation for being a rowdy bunch, as you can actually see them pelt Booker T with trash at the very end of the New Blood Rising pay-per-view, although granted that could have been just because they had sat through New Blood Rising. But there's also some trash thrown at one point during this show too, and we're going to cover that a little bit later on. But anyway, Sal, what did you think of this match and the subsequent fan dickishness? Well, on the subject of the fans, um, you saying that Vancouver has had a reputation now makes a lot more sense because there are things that we see throughout this show that it's like, wow, is this the Canadian version of Philadelphia? What's going on here? <laughs> uh, there are a couple notes I did have from this match, uh, most notably, what the hell is on Kurgan's head? Oh, right. He had some type of black skull cap condom. I don't know what it was. Uh, yeah, it kind of looks like an old-school, like, 1920s football helmet. Yes. Also, what the fuck? You got two giant guys here in Golga and Kurgan, and they're essentially the world's dumbest, ugliest jobbers. Yeah, pretty much. And did you happen to notice that Michael Cole refers to the doll as Cartman? Now, no, I didn't. I missed that. Is that to avoid being sued by Comedy Central, or is that really how he thinks it's pronounced? I would I would not doubt if somebody like wrote that on a piece of paper, be like, you know, here's how here's Cartman. You know, he's part of the the oddities, and Michael Cole read it as like Cartman, like like Batman. Is he a is he a man who pushes carts? So yeah, I could definitely see Cole not knowing who Cartman was. Absolutely, especially at this point because South Park had only been around for I think. Like a year. Maybe a couple... Yeah, about a year. Not about even, a year. Not even a year, exactly. So you're right. He probably just had no idea how to pronounce it. Yeah. Kurgan holding up the cart man. <laughs> also, uh, Golga at one point, and I still have a big, like, disbelief that that's Earthquake. I know it's Earthquake. It just... It, the shape of him and everything's so weird about it, it just doesn't seem like Earthquake. To the point where he throws a drop kick at one point. Did you catch that? Yes. Yeah. What the fuck? Earthquake with a dropkick? Never. Fucking John Tenta going aerial. Yeah, I guess he's, he's just trying to prove he can still work, I suppose. I don't know. He's <laughs> determined to rise above that jobber level. Mean, maybe, you, maybe if I throw a dropkick, I'll get uh, I'll get pushed up a little bit. You mean he's saying, I got kids, I need this job? That's right, exactly. I don't know if he has kids, but he did need the job. And also, they, the funny thing, too, is they don't really go out of their way to hide that it's Earthquake, because his finisher is the earthquake splash it's literally the exact same move he used as earthquake and that's a move that is 100% synonymous with earthquake so yeah i guess they didn't uh they didn't think of any new finisher for him they're just like eh, fuck it whatever now henry i do have one last question about this match and i'm hoping you can answer it for me i hope i can too what is the purpose of the giant silva <laughs> uh to look really tall and that's about it Okay. I mean, he's he's only wrestled he only wrestled like a handful of matches because I think he's so immobile to like a giant Gonzalez level that they're just like, "Yeah, fuck it, you know, we're not we're not putting this guy in the ring. He's just going to be, you know, like a mascot of sorts basically like what they have with Luna because I don't think they can trust him to to do anything in there without fucking it up." He's from Stern, right? He's from Oh, is Giant Silva? He might, I don't know, maybe. I know that there's a couple other people that go in and out of the oddities that are from uh 
the Howard Stern show. But yeah, that's what I thought because I'm like, I, I don't see any other point of this guy. Yeah, well, I, I know when they first debuted, it was the Jackal debuting the oddities, and it was uh, he trotted out Hank the Angry Drunken Dwarf. So he was he's definitely synonymous with Stern, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Whatever. It's yeah. It's almost like Vince Russo was a fan or something. I don't know. So our next match was Steve Blackman versus the recently unretired Owen Hart, and for the record, enormous pop here for Owen with them being in Vancouver tonight, and Owen obviously being a Canadian himself. Certainly quite clear that all these goofy blue blazer antics have not diminished Canada's enthusiasm for their native son. Huge pop for Owen, and I did like the fact that he said he was quote-unquote coming out of retirement. Yes. So the finish of the match came when Blackman actually managed to put the sharpshooter on Owen, and thankfully Earl Hebner was not refereeing this match, otherwise he surely would have called for the bell. Instead, however, Owen managed to crawl to the ropes, and then he simply rolled out of the ring and walked backstage, giving the count-out victory to Steve Blackman after a pretty solid 10-minute match. Bit of a strange choice for an ending there, but I guess maybe they were going out of their way to try and keep Owen a heel despite the Canadian crowd. So, Sal, what did you think of this one? I thought the physicality was good. I was surprised. We got a U.S. <laughs> were, you intentionally, were you intentionally using a, a Vince McMahon word there, the physicality? <laughs> um, were you surprised that we got a U.S. sucks chant from the Vancouver crowd? No, I could see that happening since they're they're so partial to Owen. Uh, I, I thought that was pretty amusing, actually. And Owen even, I think, took a fan's Canadian flag when he was walking to the ring. So he was really playing it up, the, uh, the, the pro-Canadian aspect, even though, again, he's supposed to be the heel. But, I mean, on a night like this, you know, when you, when you go to Canada, it's pretty much just expected that anybody on the hearts or anybody, you know, affiliated with the hearts is going to get cheered. Also, at one point during the match, uh, this stuck out to me so much that I had to write it down. Jerry Lawler says, a day without sunshine is like night. That's deep. <laughs> That's real deep. What was the context for that? I, I don't. They're complaining about Vancouver and how they don't. They, you know, I, I don't think they get, like, as much light up north. It's kind of like Alaska where they go. Oh, yeah. But, like, the, Interesting. the way he said it, I'm just like, I just stopped what I was doing and, and wrote it down to be like, this stupid goddamn line by <laughs> oh and it won't be his last i'm sure he'll have plenty more coming down in the future and did you notice the heat that blackman got for putting the sharpshooter on owen yeah and quite frankly well deserved well deserved well deserved absolutely yeah you can't you can't put that move on any but you can't steal owen hart's move that's just or, or bret hart's move i suppose well, I don't know. Either Owen invented it or Owen perfected it because they couldn't decide during this match, the commentators. I wonder if they instinctively boo just because they think, like, it's it's like innate in them that they think there's about to be a screw job happen when a heart gets the, the sharpshooter put on him. That's what they should have did. They should have rang the bell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but it was I forget who was refereeing the match. It wasn't Earl Hebner. It was somebody else. So our next match was a six-man tag match. Job Squad members Al Snow, Scorpio, and the freshly shaved Bob Holly finally got rid of that long blonde hair versus the Brood, who unfortunately do not get their signature Ring of Fire entrance because there's no stage for the pay-per-view, just a flat aisleway. Were you bummed about that, Sal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, rightfully so. Although we do get it on Raw. We get it exactly. on Raw. Exactly. That's why I didn't—I wasn't too bummed, but yes, I was a little bit bummed. And actually, Sal, on that note, do you know what the Brood's entrance on this show had in common with the match itself? Um, it was lame. Yes, but the answer I was looking for was no heat. <laughs> That's right. 
Yes, the crowd was pretty dead for it, which is unfortunate because I didn't think it was a bad match at all. And to my surprise, we even got to see Scorpio bust out that move where he goes to the top rope as if he was going to do a moonsault, but then he adds that one extra rotation and turns it into a leg drop. I have no idea what that's called, but it's really fucking cool to see that, I guess, uh, 450 leg drop. I have no I have no idea. The reverse 450 leg drop is amazing. There, oh, there you go. So you, now you know what it's called. Now the fans do as well. Um, I just learned something. Here's the problem. You cannot put the job squad on twice in front of the same crowd. Yes. And that's, that's why true. they got no reaction. Because that's I true, because they were on Everybody heat. was like, again with these fucking guys? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I totally forgot they were on heat as well, yeah. Also, at one point, Christian hits the unprettier, and Michael Cole goes, there's that move again! And I'm like, uh, yeah. have they not named it yet? That's right. Though I think they have. They call it the Impaler. Ah, uh, got it. But, yeah, then it goes on to be the Unprettier, and then the Kill Switch, so yeah, take your fucking pick. I, I like it. It's a really good finishing move, but that is indeed how the match ended. Christian hit Scorpio with the Impaler. So, yeah, the Job Squad ended up living up to their name, and that was enough, of course, to give the victory to the Brood. So, well, Sal, what did you think of this uh, this six-man tag match? Uh, I, I saw enough of the Job Squad to... You know, I, I just couldn't get into this match. Again, Scorpio's athleticism is amazing. Um, mm-hmm. Although, Jerry Lawler, at the end of the match, completely murdered kayfabe. And he says, is that what they mean by doing the job? Oh, <laughs> Jesus. Th- thanks. Thanks, Jerry. Like, Jerry Lawler has no idea what that means. Like, oh, doing the job? What does that mean? Uh, yeah. He's only been in the in the business for about 50 years at this point in his career, so he has he has no idea what that means. Yeah, him, and, and, him then, and Cole were a little bit insufferable on this show. Yeah, not not the best combo. I, I kind of like the... One of the main reasons I like the Jim Ross-Jerry Lawler combination over the years... It, number one, obviously they play off each other very well, but it's also those moments where Jim Ross gets pissed off at Jerry Lawler and kind of like gives it back to him, you know? Well, the, that's the best part of the dynamic. It, it reminds me of the, you know, Bobby Heenan Grill Monsoon, where eventually Jim Ross is going to be like, Enough, Jerry! Yeah, I can think of those moments where, like, you know, Lawler makes fun of Jim Ross for wearing a cowboy hat, and, like, Jerry will go back at him, like, yeah, because a lot of grown men wear crowns. <laughs> so, <laughs> just those those great little moments like that. So, good times. And Michael Cole, I think, at this point, is he's so new that I don't even know if he's, you know, if he's too timid to go after Lawler in the same way. But So, for the record, you know. unlike most people, I don't have a problem with Michael Cole, especially, you know. For what it's worth, Michael Cole has provided some very good commentary commentary over the past, we'll say, ten years, right? He has, yeah. But it, although I will I will point out on this show, there's a certain thing he says that I'm going to insert the, a clip into because it uh, it's very much of the time. But yeah. But what I, I was going to say is, you. at this point in his career, though, no, no, right? Cole right. is really bad. He's just like a deer in headlights out there. Yep. And he like oversells and, everything, so it's really weird. Yep. And we'll touch on that actually in the very next match, funny enough, what, what Cole says that caught my attention. So our next match was the striptease match, Goldust versus Jeff Jarrett, who is accompanied by Deborah. And in case you need a reminder of the stakes here, if Jarrett wins, then Goldust has to get naked. But if Goldust wins, then Deborah has to get naked. And because of that stipulation, holy shit, were the fans ever rooting for Goldust here? This match may be the most over that Goldust has ever been. There's one point where Goldust just hits a standard bulldog, which has 
never been a finisher for him, but when Jarrett barely kicks out at two, the fans react as though it was like a like a near fall in a WrestleMania main event. Pretty crazy to see just how invested the crowd was in, well, seeing Dipper's boobs, quite frankly. That's pretty much what it was. So the finish of the match came when Goldust hit Jarrett with shattered dreams behind referee Jack Doan's back. Jarrett then rolled outside the ring, which caused Doan to check on him, and in the meantime... Deborah snuck into the ring with Jarrett's guitar and clobbered Goldust in the head with it. Jarrett rolled back into the ring, hit Goldust with the reverse Russian leg sweep, and scored the one, the two, and the three. Jeff Jarrett wins, which means Goldust must now get naked, much to the chagrin of the fans. And at this point, since we're in Vancouver, I started flashing back to when the Canucks lost to the Bruins in the Stanley Cup Finals in 2011, and then the fans proceeded to burn the city to the ground. That's, that's kind of what I imagined was going to happen here. But wait a second, not so fast, because a certain authority figure emerges from backstage to tell us that this decision may not stand. to your son one hell of a victory now why don't you go on back there and get yourself a cold beverage Deborah? i want you to stay out here because what is going on here i think you're gonna want to see this you know i was thumbing through my wwf rule book back there and it reads in there that if you bring in a foreign object into the ring such as a guitar what Results in a disqualification. What? What? Therefore, what? Shawn Michaels is disqualified. The winner of this match would be Goldust. Shawn Michaels what? has disqualified Jeff Jarrett. What a great commission! Now, now, old HBK is taking a lot of shots to the head, and I can barely remember what underwear to put on in the morning, but as I was flipping through the contract, I read a clause in there that said, if Goldust won, which he has, you therefore would have to take off your clothes. Now, Deborah. Deborah. As much as it pains me to do so, it is time to stop your grinning and drop your linen. Oh, my. Let's just say it was a different time. So Deborah then does indeed proceed to start stripping down to her bra and her thong, much to the delight of the fans, and HBK as well, as he actually ends up putting a dollar bill between her breasts. Interestingly, Deborah had initially been protesting the fact that she would have to take her clothes off, but once the stripping starts, it appears she may actually be enjoying it. Hashtag female empowerment? Uh, no, probably not, probably not. And amusingly, they also cut backstage where we see a disbelieving Jeff Jarrett watching all of this on a monitor. But the unfortunate part is that we can also see The Rock and Mankind watching together in the background. But but I thought they hated each other. Well, also more on that in just a second, by the way. 
But back in the ring, Deborah then starts to remove her bra with some help from the commissioner. And as if you couldn't possibly dislike Michael Cole anymore at this point in time, while Deborah is getting undressed, Cole says, and I quote, You go, girlfriend. Yes, he did say that. <laughs> However, before Deborah can show off the goods, Jeff Jarrett and the Blue Blazer run to the ring, and the Blazer covers her up with his cape. Sorry, folks, there will unfortunately not be female nudity on two straight pay-per-views. So, Sal, what did you think of this match and the subsequent stripping? Uh, you did bring up a good point about this match, as Goldust was the most over person in the company for this one match. Uh, the reactions he was getting was crazy because everybody wanted to see him win. Now, if I had to pick one segment of the whole night for Shawn Michaels to go and become a face commissioner, this right. this was the segment. So bizarre. Incredibly bizarre that he is basically, he turns himself babyface for this one segment. Which, you know what? It's not just him. You mentioned Rock and Mankind watching backstage, the monitor. Everybody just comes together to watch Deborah Strip at this point. Yeah, everybody comes together is right. <laughs> and Michaels, by the way, saying, I love my job, made this yeah. segment for me. Yep. And the the creepy line he gets in where he says, stop your grinning and drop your linen. Yeah, that, that seems like, a little forced. <laughs> yeah, that was... Sounds sounds a little bit like uh, I don't know, just uh, just a little bit too sleazy there. But I, I suppose when the whole segment revolves around Deborah getting naked, you can't you can't go too far down. I guess it's we're we're already there. We're already at rock bottom, as one might say. And kudos so, to Deborah for even after the blue blazer covered her up, what does she do? She struts right back across the ring, showing everybody just how well in shape she is. Indeed, yeah. This is uh this is this is peak Deborah at this point. This is before she kind of started having all the plastic surgery, um, on, on her face anyway. Obviously, she's been enhanced elsewhere. But yeah, I remember uh, really being a big fan of Deborah around this point in time. Gee, so I wonder why. I know. Yeah, I can't imagine why. Being what was I seventeen at hey, this time? So to her credit, she was in phenomenal shape. It wasn't absolutely fat on her. Absolutely. So now we know Deborah apparently, from what it seems in this segment, it appears that Deborah is starting to enjoy stripping for the fans. So I guess we'll see if that plays out going forward. Now, also, remember how I mentioned that, as you just said, that we could see Rock and Mankind together in the background a few moments ago while, while they were showing Jeff Jarrett watching the monitor? Yes. Well, now earlier in this show, Vince McMahon could be seen entering the boiler room to talk with Mankind about that contract, and we then got a shot of Vince leaving the boiler room where he was presumably still talking to mankind. Unfortunately, when Vince leaves and turns the corner, we can clearly see mankind and the rock talking to each other yet again. So that is two straight segments where the camera catches the two bitter rivals just having a casual chat with each other backstage. I dare say kayfabe may be dead. Did you notice that as well, Sal, when Vince leaves the the boiler room? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, uh, I noticed it the first time, as you mentioned, in the when Jeff Jarrett saw Deborah on the monitor, and I was like, "Oh, oh that's not good." Rock and Mankind talking backstage, and yep. then the second time when Vince left the boiler room, I was like, "Oh man, they just really just did that." <laughs> yep two two segments in a row where they're just like, "Hey, there, there's the Rock and Mankind hanging out. No biggie, no biggie." Well, that cameraman is fired. I, I hope so, and the producer should be fired too. Kevin Dunn? 
Yeah. Yeah, I wish. Fuck, fucking fire Kevin Dunn. Keep his finger off the switch. Keep your finger off the switch, Dunn. <laughs> so, yes, those those bitter rivals talking over the match. But I will say, I mean, if it causes them to, you know, if, if they have to show them on camera in order for them to have a good match, then uh, I think it's worth it because their match leader, I think, is pretty good. But we'll get to that in, in just a bit. We have one more match to get into before that match, and it is our WWF Tag Team Title Match Champions, the New Age Outlaws, versus WWF Intercontinental Champion Ken Shamrock and WWF Hardcore Champion The Big Boss Man, and they are, of course, accompanied by Commissioner Shawn Michaels. So he's back to being a heel one segment after being the babyface, yes. the biggest babyface on the roster. Now, I'm going to interrupt for you for, for a brief moment. Please. Because I had completely forgot the level at to which the Outlaws were over. Yes. So even Huge. though they're in Canada, the whole crowd is saying Road Dog Stick. Oh, yeah. Like, word for word. And I was just like, wow. You know, you tend to forget just how over these guys were. For sure. They're, they are... I don't even think necessarily it's because of DX, although obviously that certainly helps. I think even if these guys had never joined DX, they would still be at this level just by virtue of being so entertaining. Although, granted, I'm saying these guys, it's mostly Road Dog being entertaining. Yeah, it's all, mostly Road Dog. <laughs> yeah, all, all Billy Gunn really does is just finish it off well, with that. Well, I got two words for you. Billy, Billy is entertaining the following night on Raw, but we'll get there. That, that is true, yes. <laughs> that is true, given that. So, as a reminder, in this match, earlier tonight on Sunday Night Heat, HBK banned the other members of DX from being at ringside, so the Outlaws will have no backup tonight. Now, let me just say as well, this match went about 16 minutes, and that is way too long for a New Age Outlaws match. And the finish seemingly came out of nowhere, too, as Billy Gunn went to hit Shamrock with a suplex, but Shawn Michaels grabbed Billy's foot, tripping him up and causing Shamrock to land on top of him. However... Mr. S then simply just rolled through, positioned himself on top of Shamrock, and scored the three count. Now, I'm not sure if that was a botch or if it was just sloppy looking, but either way, it's a win and a successful title retention for the New Age Outlaws, despite the odds being stacked against them. So, Sal, what did you think of this 16-minute match? So, it was, the ending was sloppy, but I think that was the planned ending, was that, you know, Sean was going to try to trip him, and then Billy was going to roll through and, and end up on top for the pinfall. Yeah, what they did in this match is a classic, typical um, tag team match where, you, you know, you beat down one member of the face team for a long, long time until you get that hot tag. But it was like a real long time, like a yeah. real long time to the point where I was like, <laughs> all right, you know what? They're starting to lose me. I'm starting to get really bored. It's not that I'm right. starting to be like, wow, I can't wait till Billy gets the tag. It's that, why are we still doing this? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but that being said, you know, crowd popped when, when Billy did roll through and get the pinfall. And, and, and I thought it was a yes. nice moment because Michaels was beside himself. And any times you get Sean as a heel beside himself, it's gold. Absolutely. Which happened uh, pretty well on the previous episode, too, where the outlaws pretended to join the corporation and then swerved them. And we got a really good Sean Michaels freak out there. Which, which, if you want to go back and listen to the previous episode with Adam, we touched on that there. But yeah, Shawn Michaels, he does a good job uh, freaking the fuck out. And now, it is time for your WWF Championship match. Champion The Rock, accompanied by Vince and Shane McMahon, versus Challenger Mankind. And I have to note that it appears that Jim Johnston is not merely satisfied with making crappy remixes of The Rock's song, because for this show, he has now created a remix 
of Mankind's theme as well, and I'm going to play about 40 seconds of it for you here so you can judge it for yourself. So what did you think, Sal? Were you a fan of the Mankind remix? Eh. <laughs> yeah. I was a little bit surprised, because don't we get a brand new theme song for Mankind very soon? In your we do, room? just a couple weeks. So yep, just a couple maybe weeks. maybe they were just testing the waters with this one? Yeah, and obviously, I'm assuming it doesn't last very long, because, <laughs> uh, yeah, we do get the one, the more iconic, I suppose, theme song, you could say, the one he uses for quite a while. But, uh, yeah, this caught me completely by surprise. I had n- no recollection of this whatsoever. Also, on a side note, how the fuck do you get a pay-per-view named after you, but you're not the main event? I know, I thought that too. I thought the same thing. But I guess it's because, you know, Austin is Austin at this point, so they have to put him on last, I guess, in theory. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, but I I was wondering that too, because I wasn't checking the timestamp. When I was watching the pay-per-view, I wanted to see if they would put the title match last, or if they would put the Buried Alive match last, and sure enough, they they do go Buried Alive. So, sorry, Rock, you're not... I guess Rock just isn't quite a main eventer yet. (laughs) He'll get there. So, getting back to McFoley, when he comes to the ring, he's once again holding the contract in his hand, and before the match begins, Vince McMahon grabs a mic and tells Mick that they can settle this right now, and he asks him if he brought a pen. Now, the contract stipulates that if The Rock is unable to compete tonight due to injury, the title will automatically be given to Mankind. However, Mick is willing to cross out that part of the contract on... One condition, Vince McMahon must admit to the world right now that Mankind never said I quit at the Survivor Series last month. However, Vince instead tries to have it both ways. He says he didn't hear Mick say I quit, but he knows that The Rock heard it, so it must have happened. And of course, that's not good enough for Foley, so he then proceeds to tear up the contract, which... Uh, somehow means that the match will start right now? You would think tearing up the contract would mean there would be no match, but apparently that's not the case here. Bit of strange booking. Yeah, a little bit of a weird visual there. I'm going to tear up the contract for the match I have. Right. I'm tearing up this contract for the match, which means there's going to be a match. Right. Makes a lot of sense. So, because it's the Attitude Era, Rock and Mankind start by brawling outside the ring, with Foley constantly getting the better of the champ. However, once he rolls Rock back into the ring, Vince grabs a mic and tells the referee that he should disqualify Foley for, quote, any legitimate reason, but, uh, wouldn't that really be the case for any match? I'm confused already. So a few minutes later, we get a truly painful-looking spot, as Mankind hit Rock with a baseball slide, causing the People's Champ to land on the announce table. From there, Mankind went to the second turnbuckle with the intention of presumably flying off and hitting Rock with a diving elbow drop, but Shane McMahon grabbed Foley's foot to prevent him from jumping, and from there, the Rock managed to recover. He grabbed Foley by the arm, and then he threw him back first onto the ground. So basically... 
Picture Mick Foley doing a somersault from the second turnbuckle right to the arena floor. I mean, Jesus Christ, you could hear the massive thud when he landed. That had to have been easily the 25th most painful bump he took in the past few weeks. I tell you, it was that bad. Did you notice that one as well, Sal? Oh, it was in my notes. That was horrific looking. And when he landed, like you said, it made that thud. And you were just like, oh, man, that's the guy's spine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But it's Mick Foley, so it's okay. I guess. I mean, this is why I have such a hard time criticizing Foley in present day. Because I'm like, just look at what he did to his body for like ten straight years. Well, if if you criticize him in the present day, just criticize him for the constant uh, Santa Claus outfits he wears. That's a good point. So after that, we get the debut of a spot The Rock would go on to bust out several more times throughout his career. He put on one of the headsets during the match and started commentating while he was beating up Mankind. So I guess you could call that classic rock, I suppose? I love that but spot anyway. when he when he commentates his own match. Oh, yeah. And back in the ring, Rock then hit Mankind with the corporate elbow. And I will say, even though that elbow is now corporate, the fans still pop huge for it. Only got a two count, though. And shortly after that, Mankind took control, and at one point, with Rock lying on the canvas, Mankind hit him with a leg drop to the groin, which caused Vince McMahon to yell at Mike Kyoto to disqualify Foley. It appeared that Kyoto was about to do it, so Foley hit Kyoto with his patented pulling pile driver to incapacitate him. Vince then told the timekeeper to ring the bell, so Foley ran over and beat up the timekeeper before he could ring it. Foley then turned his attention to Vince himself, but before he could get to the boss... The Rock leveled him from behind with a chair. Back in the ring, Rock hit Mankind with a rock bottom, but Kyoto was still unconscious. Rock called for Shane to come into the ring, and he then proceeded to hold up Foley so Shane could nail him with the WWF title, but Foley ducked and Shane accidentally hit Rock with the belt. Mankind then covered Rock and backup referee Tim White ran into the ring to make the count, but Rock kicked out at two. From there, Mankind pulled out Mr. Sacco and successfully managed to put the mandible claw on the rock, so let's pick it up from there. Rocket! He can't stand straight! Sacco! The mandible claw! Sacco! The rock's in trouble! Is the rock's in trouble! Get anything! Mankind has got the claw locked in. Somebody's got to do something, Mr. McMahon! Somebody's got to... Look at this now. The claw on. Rock desperately trying to get to the ropes. Can he do it? Reach back. Can the corporate champion get to the ropes? Wait a minute. It's over. We have a new champion. We have a new WWF champion. is by pinfall or submission and since the rock did not tap out or did not say i quit still your wwf champion ladies and gentlemen the rock oh that's a damn shame no he's right 
So I will say, even though this is a bullshit finish, it was pretty clever of them to use Mankind's own words against him. So remember he said he was never pinned and never said, I quit at the Survivor Series. And technically, The Rock did not do either of those things here since he passed out from the Mandible Claw. So I will give them points for originality, I suppose. Well, that's and one after... way of looking at it. <laughs> right. I was uh, on a little bit on the opposite side of the fence. I was more thinking of... That's the biggest stretch for a, for a <laughs> screw job finish since the screw job that they did at Survivor Series a month or so right. ago. That's the biggest screw job in easily the past month. <laughs> but after the match, Mankind then put the Mandible Claw on Vince, which Shane tried to break up with two chair shots, but fully no-sold both of them, and then he put the Claw on Shane as well. Patterson and Briscoe then ran out from backstage and fully easily dispatched them. However, this then brought out Ken Shamrock and the Big Boss Man, and that proved to be too much for Mick to overcome. They beat the crap out of him in the corner, and Rock then recovered and took some more cheap shots of his own. He posed on the turnbuckle with his title belt to big boos from the crowd, and then the corporation headed backstage. And yet again, Mick Foley is left beaten down by The Rock and his corporate cronies. So Sal, what did you think of this match and the subsequent shenanigans? Well, first off, I I enjoy any time these two are in the ring together. They definitely have a chemistry and um, a rivalry that I think really, um, you know, kind of cemented both guys as top guys in the Attitude Era. Agreed. Um, this was probably one of their lesser-known matches. They, they would go on to have a couple more that would be of, more of note. But I thought they still did a good job. I, I appreciate it when Rock did the commentary on, on his own match. Uh, Jerry Lawler says, can I get a high five? And he goes, no, but I'll give you a slap in the teeth. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. And I, 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 will, I agree with basically exactly what you were saying, that like I completely forgot this match ever happened. I didn't remember this finish at all. But when I was watching the match, I was completely into it, having no recollection of it whatsoever. I think this is the one match on the pay-per-view which actually stood out, which was worth watching. No, it was good. A lot of the spots, like you said, that one where Foley got tossed off of the the apron, that was incredible. But I liked the idea of him attacking the ref and then the timekeeper. Yeah, that was pretty. That was pretty amusing. Uh, he poor Kyoto. I mean, he got fucking laid out. It looked like he got spiked. <laughs> yep. And then he attacked that... the timekeeper. <laughs> poor timekeeper. I'm just here to ring the bell. Not tonight. Actually, you know Not what tonight. it reminded me of? Uh, it reminded me of the in the Sopranos where um. They beat up the appraiser, and he's, <laughs> he's... I haven't seen that, actually. Oh, God, it's hilarious. He's running, you know, he's running from the gangsters, and he's like, I'm just the appraiser! And they beat him up. <laughs> it's kind of like what happened to the timekeeper there. Pretty much. That's like the definition of, like, shoot the messenger, essentially. Like, I'm just doing what I'm told to do! But you know what? Yeah, this I, was a I good first step to where they're going to get to with Foley and, and uh, Rock. Yes. Yeah, I think this is actually, this was an improvement on their Survivor Series match, and I think we're going to get even better matches between them going forward. Spoiler alert. Right, exactly. But yes, again, this this is the only match, actually maybe Owen and Blackman, that was pretty good too, but those are really the only two matches I would recommend checking out from this pay-per-view. And that's including our very next match, our main event, it is... The Buried Alive match, Stone Cold Steve Austin versus The Undertaker, who is accompanied by Paul Bearer. And as a reminder, Vince McMahon has also stipulated that Stone Cold must win this match in order to qualify for the Royal Rumble next month. So clearly, there are some high stakes here for Austin. 
Now, if you're not familiar with a Buried Alive match, I'll quickly set the scene for you. Next to the entrance, there's an open grave with a large pile of dirt nearby, and again, talk about Cole's exaggerations, allegedly 2,000 pounds of dirt, according to him, and the object is, of course, for you to put your opponent inside of the grave and cover him with the dirt. Sim- simple enough, right? Yeah, simple enough. So I had planned on recapping this match a little bit more in-depth, but truthfully, it was really just Austin and Taker brawling all around the arena until they finally got to the end part where they made it to the grave. So Taker had chokeslammed Stone Cold in the ring, and then he walked him up the ramp and put Austin in the hole. And by the way, this is where that aforementioned dickhead fan threw a cup of soda near Taker, drawing big oohs from the crowd. What an asshole. And Sal, I don't know if you noticed this as well, that was the one where you could clearly see a fan throw some shit, but also when they were walking around the dirt pile, you could see other cups and shit lying around, so I think a lot of fans were throwing shit throughout this match. Yeah, I mean, it's the end of the night. It doesn't surprise me. I don't think they were doing it because they didn't necessarily like the match. I think they were just doing it to be dicks. Right, absolutely. So Taker started shoveling some dirt on top of Stone Cold, but Austin escaped uh, and uh, grabbed uh, a... With his hands. Oh, with his hands, right, exactly. Instead of using the yeah. shovel that was right next to him, he, he, he True. went all four years old on us and started using his hands. He was doing like a, like a dog-type move. Right. <laughs> like burying a bone in the backyard. <laughs> So, so he started putting, he started uh, not not shoveling, but I guess scooping some dirt on top of Stone Cold. But Austin escaped and grabbed a gas can, which was there for some reason. Hey, look Stone a Cold gas then, can! Yeah, just hanging out. I thought that was actually going to play into the match, but it it did not actually. So Stone Cold then leveled Taker in the head with two gas can shots, and then he hit him with a stunner, causing Taker to fall inside the grave. And from there. Austin then chased Paul Bearer backstage for some reason, which gave Taker enough time to recover and exit the hole. So Taker then grabbed a shovel and appeared to be lying in wait for Austin to return, but instead, we saw an explosion inside the hole, and from there, Kane emerged from the grave and started attacking his brother. He hit Taker with a tombstone and put him inside of the grave, and then Stone Cold reemerged from backstage, and he was driving a backhoe. Now, unfortunately, this is where things started to go a bit wrong. Initially, it took a while for the backhoe driver to pour the dirt on top of the Undertaker, and it was not nearly enough, so Austin had to start shoveling some of it on himself. It certainly seemed like the backhoe driver was supposed to keep piling more and more dirt on top of the grave, but it took him forever to pick up the dirt. And mercifully, Earl Hebner eventually just declared Austin to be the winner, and Stone Cold wisely grabbed some beers and walked to the ring, presumably to take the focus away from the struggling backhoe operator who was still trying to pour dirt on top of Taker. Memo to the WWF, when you hire someone for a crucially important spot during the main event of one of your pay-per-views, you might want to make sure the person has actually used that machinery before in his life. Just a tip. Just a tip. So yes, Austin has quote-unquote buried The Undertaker alive and earned a spot in the Royal Rumble next month, and that is how our show comes to a close. So Sal, what did you think of the Buried Alive match? Who the fuck was the backhoe driver? What, they stick Brooklyn <laughs> Brawler in there? <laughs> I mean, th- I think he'd do a better job. I mean, visually, I- I'm sure the fans in the arena were fine with it, but for us at home... The moron literally could not get dirt in the grave using the backhoe. Correct. It, like, really deflated the moment because it was like, yay, Austin's driving a backhoe. Austin's out of the backhoe. Oh, they can't seem to get the dirt out of the backhoe. Wait, he's going back. (laughs) He's going forward. 
Oh, a little dirt fell. Oh, that's not enough. Oh, look, he's trying to, like, scrape more dirt into the grave. Oh, this is yeah. taking way, way too long. <laughs> yeah. It was it was kind of painful to watch. And uh, honestly, I thought this match was, was pretty terrible. Right. Which is unfortunate because, you know, com- contrast this to their SummerSlam match, which was really good. This is just kind of like a sloppy brawl. Finish was pretty shitty. And yeah, also... On, like, knowing that they were doing that explosion spot with Kane coming out, there was a time where Undertaker and Austin were both inside that grave brawling. If I was either one of them, knowing there was an explosion coming up later, I'd be worried that my fucking legs were going to get blown off. Yeah, that, that's a, that's you know? a fair point. Yeah, because something goes wrong, and you know, you're, you're, you're fucked if, you, if that explosion goes off too early for some reason. So, not that it necessarily would, but, I mean, if I was brawling inside that grave, I would want to get the fuck out of there as quickly as possible. So, so th- this might yeah. be blasphemous to say, but I'm not a fan of the brawling into the crowd during a wrestling match. Because it, I it agree. gets really tired. It's just like, oh, look, he punched him. Oh, look, they're going to go up the stairs. Oh, look, they're going to go down the stairs. It's, like, dumb. Yeah. There was a time where it was a novel concept when they first busted it out. But in the Attitude Era, they go to that well so often that it's just kind of like, all right, here we go. We're going to fill some time. You know, basically just, you know, this this is just something we have to do because it's the Attitude Era. and We're going to interact with the fans and blah, blah, blah. But, yeah, it, I agree with you that it's not really, And the most you, know, you ever get out of it is like a backdrop over the guardrail, if that. Right. So that, right. It's like usually the most – other than that, it's just a bunch of punches being thrown and, like, grabbing somebody by the back of the neck and, like, going up the other stairs. And I don't know. I'm just not a fan. Although sometimes sometimes you get those moments where, like, The Rock in particular would try to jazz it up by, like, picking up one of those plastic trash bins and hitting somebody in the head with it. Or he'd grab somebody's soda and, you know, drink some for himself and, and then, like, smack it on someone's head. But uh, yeah, other than that, the crowd the crowd brawls don't really do too much for me. And this was pretty much all just Austin and Undertaker literally walking around the arena brawling with each other for for about twenty minutes before they finally got to the finish. So yeah, not not a good match in my in my humble opinion. Not a good match, but so, a, a decent pay per view for what it was. Yeah. Well, on that note, in case you're wondering, here are some quick numbers on Rock Bottom. So it did roughly 287,000 pay-per-view buys, which was the third lowest number for the WWF in 1998. That was ahead of only No Way Out of Texas and Over the Edge, and it's also roughly 200,000 fewer buys than they got for last month's Survivor Series pay-per-view. So clearly they didn't really build too much on that momentum. And also, I think it's safe to say you can probably assume a lot of wrestling fans would be more interested in purchasing WCW Starcade in a few weeks, since that's their equivalent of WrestleMania. However, though, if you want one silver lining, if you go back to last December's In Your House Degeneration X pay-per-view, that show only did about 159,000 buys, so Rock Bottom actually improved on that by about 130,000 purchases. So that is a really solid improvement. I imagine they were probably pretty happy with that increase. But overall, Sal, to wrap up, what were your thoughts on Rock Bottom In Your House? For an in-your-house, it wasn't that bad. I've certainly seen a lot worse. <laughs> um, the Mankind Rock match was exciting. I liked the dynamic they played up of fully injuring his ribs, and then if Rock doesn't defend the title, he'll be stripped of it. So, you know, that that played out nicely throughout the night. The Austin-Taker match was a bit of a letdown, but I think the point of it was Austin won. He's going to be in the Rumble, and I think that's really what everybody just wanted to see. 
Uh, and then the surprise, obviously, was uh, Owen Hart versus Steve Blackman. Pretty good match. Uh, Owen's never going to have a bad match, in my opinion. He's just too good. True. I I would say I would give it a thumbs down personally. I I thought this was uh, kind of a kind of a slog to get through. I've definitely, as you said, seen worse pay per views. Uh, specifically, if you want to go in your houses, if you remember in your house, Great White North, that one is a pretty big. That's a pretty big shit sandwich. Um, although uh, I guess the silver lining there, that's the one where Goldust debuts. But other than that, that's uh, when you, when you have Diesel versus Bulldog as your main event, uh, not not good times. But, yeah, but Goldust debuted against Gennetti. <laughs> That's true, he did. I mean, of, of all people, let's uh, let's not raise that debut too much. Yeah, well, yeah. So, so basically, uh, yes, there have been worse in your house shows. Be- for there have been worse in your house shows before, but uh, I would say this one was, was pro- probably probably in the lower tier, pretty bad. So, so a thumbs down from me. But with that being said, are you ready to get into Monday Night Raw? Oh, I'm ready. Excellent, then let's do it. It is Monday, December 14th, 1998, and we are live from the Tacoma Dome in Tacoma, Washington. And some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include the upcoming WCW Spring Stampede 1999, three episodes of SmackDown, and three other episodes of Raw. And the most noteworthy episode of Raw which took place here, aside from this one, is likely the July 2nd, 2001 episode where former WCW wrestlers Booker T and Buff Bagwell faced each other in the main event and the crowd absolutely shit all over the match. That's right, they had the WCW guys fight each other in Tacoma when Raw was taking place in Atlanta exactly one week later. Brilliant bit of foresight there. So we open the show with some still photographs of last night's pay-per-view, courtesy of WWF Magazine, of course, specifically focusing on Mankind getting screwed out of the WWF title once again, and Austin defeating The Undertaker in the Buried Alive match. And from there, we queue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. And by the way, at this show, it literally looked like almost everyone in the crowd brought a fucking sign. I mean, there were a shitload of them. And some of those noteworthy signs in the crowd tonight included, I hate signs, give me, give me wrestling or give me death, drinking since 316, Vince blows goats, Pimpa Shango, that was pretty good, Undertaker rest in piss, this guy sucks dick, the green blazer with a pot leaf on the sign, if you beat me, you can eat me, China, yeah, I don't don't know about that. Uh, China is my bitch. Got midgets, and more on that in just a moment. Nitro girls are skanks. Best damn soap opera on TV. Five words, put it in your mouth. And pimpin' ain't easy, but I sure am hung. So, Sal, were there any you noticed that I happened to miss? I, I did actually have a few. I oh, will- excellent. I will note, I did have the Vince Blows Goats, which I feel like is at every Raw at this point. Pretty common. And I did have the Pimpin' Ain't Easy, But I Sure Am Hung. Subtle. (laughs) Very subtle. Also, what's the correlation there? Like, it's not easy to be a pimp, also I have a big dick. (laughs) Like, those don't Um, necessarily go together, but all right. But some that I noticed, uh, some, a, a group of fans had a long you know, one of those chain signs where it said, Austin 316 says, I just kicked your ass, which I don't think is the exact phrase. <laughs> Pretty sure it's, I just whipped your ass. Yep. 
Uh, there was a sign that I caught that said, John Collins sucks SGMF. <laughs> I don't know who John Collins is. And the only thing I could come up for for SGMF was super gay motherfucker. Yeah, probably. At this point in time, that was probably what it was. Then there was a sign, and I give this person credit, this was one poster board. Oh, if you didn't know, you're asked better call somebody, and if you ain't down with DX, we got two words for you. <laughs> one poster board. Did they put suck it on there too, or did they leave that? Uh, maybe on they the ran back. out. Oh, the oh, okay, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, there was some nice signs with the uh, word and then the arrow pointing down. We had nits. Uh, nits, all right. Boobs. Yep. <laughs> of course. tool shed. Hmm, all right. So he was pointing down at himself as a tool shed. Yes. All right. Fair enough. Uh, and lastly, Hunter, show me yours and I'll show you mine. Ooh. And was that, then... Was that a woman holding that up? I couldn't tell. And then, oh, actually, no, no, I did see that one. I forgot to note that one because... When Triple H comes out, I think he points at her and says, after the show, or something yes, to that extent. That's in the main event. That, yeah. That's in my notes, actually. <laughs> and also, this person might want to go back to their English grammar class. It said, Goldberg 2, colon, moves. <laughs> so like, so it was like, a instead of like an Austin 316, it was a Goldberg 2, moves. I guess, although or I thought maybe they just put the colon in the wrong place. It was supposed to be before the two, like Goldberg, colon, two moves. Oh, psh. interesting. Well, clearly some very deep signs in the audience tonight. And as you mentioned, a lot of signs in Tacoma, Washington. And by the way, also a great crowd as well, which you might not expect from fucking Tacoma. What are you saying about the people of Tacoma? I'm just saying that's a, you know, <laughs> not a, not a major city by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, hey. the people in Seattle would say that too, probably. Yeah. I mean, hey, if, if we have any fans in Tacoma out there, my, my hat's off to you. I'm just saying. Absolutely. Good job, Tacoma. Absolutely. So we officially open the show with DX's music playing, but when they emerge from backstage, we see that they're all dressed as members of the corporation. So Triple H is dressed as The Rock, just like he did when they did the Nation of Domination parody back in July. X-Pac is Ken Shamrock, the Road Dog is Vince McMahon, Billy Gunn is Shane McMahon, wearing a diaper and holding a silver spoon, and China is kinda dressed like the Big Boss Man since she has a pair of sunglasses and a nightstick. Oh, and remember how I just said there was a sign in the crowd which said, Got Midgets? Well, the answer to that question is yes, because there are two midgets posing as Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe, and they're constantly kissing the fake Vince McMahon's ass during this segment. So the whole thing is a bit lengthy. It's a little under seven minutes, but I'm going to go ahead and play the whole thing for you here because I think it's pretty entertaining for the most part. And also, you're eventually going to hear impressionist Jason Sensation join the parody a few minutes in, and he's carrying a basketball with him for reasons which will soon become obvious. So let's take a listen to DX's parody of the corporation. First of all, ladies and gentlemen... Let me make one thing perfectly clear, mind you. I an asshole. <laughs> Very good. That's right, son. Shane, have you got poopies in your diaper? That's supposed to be Shane. No doo-doo. You see, as the chairperson and owner, of course, as the, of the World Wrestling Federation, 
I am both a scholar and a gentleman. I take great offense when you people call me a sphincter or a starfish. Because I am nothing less than a scholar. <laughs> King Shane has a gentleman. silver spoon. You tell him, Pop. Look you at tell it. him. You're not a speaker, Pop. Mr. Briscoe, Mr. Briscoe, does my ass taste good? Yes, it does, oh, Mr. No. Oh, man. No, no. This isn't the way to get onto the uh, good side of the corporate team. You're not a speaker, Pop. You're a scholar and a gentleman, Pop. <laughs> this, this is a speaker. Oh, oh. <laughs> very good, son. That is a sphincter. <laughs> Shane, pull up your pants, because the crowd doesn't want to smell what you're cooking. The crowd? Look at the eyebrow. Look at Shane. Ah! All this talk about sphincters is putting me in the zone. It's fine, knuckle shuffle time. Look at the boss man. <laughs> well, I can guarantee you the big boss man doesn't think this is one bit funny. Hold on. Hold on. If you're going to talk about sphincters, there's only one man. And the crock means one man. That is the biggest sphincter in the World Wrestling Federation. And there is only one man that can take his own corporate head and stick it up his own corporate ass. No! Who is he talking about? This is great, King. And when the crock is not taking his own corporate head and sticking it up his own corporate ass. That's enough of this. <laughs> He's got his own two corporate lips. Buried right down deep inside, Mr. McMahon's sphincter. Oh. <laughs> Tell me one thing, the corporation's going to come out here, the real corporation. They got to. Now hold on a minute here. What, Sean? It's the heartbreak kid, the commissioner. He ain't going to like this. <laughs> As the commissioner of the World Wrestling Federation. I'm ordering D-Generation X to clean up their act. Hold on, HBK, hold on, you've dropped the ball again. <laughs> you better quit your snickering. Now, you can't say sphincter on Monday Night Raw and get away with it. Close your eyes. Sounds like it. And if you want to know who the real ass kiss 
wrestler is in the WWF. It's me, HBJ. HBJ? <laughs> and you want to know why the heartbreak kid doesn't lie down for anybody? Because he's always bending over. Oh my. Sean, you've, uh, you dropped the ball again. I'll tell you one thing the corporation is going to be, well, they're going to be hot over this. They're going to be angry. I agree with you there. I don't think they'll be too pleased. Hopefully, they have a sense of humor. And if anybody knows about kissing sphincters, it's me. The Iconum, the main event, the showstopper! Oh, man. Look at the corporate team huddling in the uh, middle of the ring. Oh, I said all this talk about strictors! switch to decaf. <laughs> but in other words, corporation, if you don't get what DX is saying, then there's only one thing, and the crock means one thing left to say, and that we've got two words for you. Okay, so a few things here. Number one, at one point, China, as the big boss man, twirls around her nightstick and does a sort of gymnastic routine, and it's actually pretty amusing. She's definitely been getting the chance to show off a lot more of her personality over the past few weeks, so that's really nice to see. Uh, number two, in 1998, X-Pac references the five-knuckle shuffle, so I feel like John Cena owes him a tremendous debt of gratitude. Number three... You can probably figure out why this segment doesn't get replayed as much as the Nation parody does when you hear that Jason Sensation is referring to himself as H.B. Gay and making several cheap gay jokes. Not gonna fly if you tried to show that clip back here in 2018. Although I will say, Jason Sensation's Shawn Michaels impersonation is pretty dead on. I'm kind of surprised they didn't use that guy more often than they did. However, after they finish their mockery, The Rock, Shawn Michaels... Ken Shamrock and the Big Boss Man emerge from backstage and stand at the top of the ramp. So let's hear what they have to say in response. Cut my music. Degeneration X doing yet another skit, another parody, this time of the corporation. Gosh, golly gee, how original. DX, you and your parodies are like a worn-out rendition of your favorite song. But to show you that the commissioner and the corporation all 
sense of humor. New Age Outlaws. I'm going to award you two a rematch for the World Wrestling Federation Tag Team Titles against the Big Boss Man and Ken Shamrock. Whoa! Yes! And dare I say, right here tonight, when it happens, it will be the corporation who has the last laugh. Great match, great match at rock bottom last night. Should be another barn burner tonight on Raw. I'll tell you what, Triple H, you want to come out here? You want to try and imitate the great one? Well, The Rock says this. He hopes you're not too busy later on tonight because The Rock plans on whipping your monkey ass all over Tacoma. He's never been in a main event, so obviously, since he's mid-card for life, this would be a non-title match, correct? You think that jabroni down there deserves a shot at the Big Shot's gold? He only hangs out with world champions. He's never been one. Yeah, Rock's lucky he's the champ after Rock bottom. Rock, let me remind you of one thing because I know you don't want to lay that gold on the line because I might have been gone for a couple of months, but let me refresh your memory. When I was here, I was a guy kicking your ass every single week on TV. Whoa! And don't forget one more thing. Last time we were in the ring together, Rock, and you had gold around your waist, it was me who walked out of the ring with it. It was me that laid your monkey ass down. And it was me who was champ when it was said and done. Well, I'll tell you what. You let The Rock remind you the last time we went one-on-one, -on -one, it was China who nailed The Rock in his corporate jewels, giving you the Intercontinental title. But I'll tell you what. No, 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 no. No, no, no. But I'll tell you what. The Rock said it before, and he'll say it again. You go one-on-one -on -one with the great one. Makes your monkey ass famous. Tonight, Tacoma World Title Match. Yeah. So now, so now, Triple H, The Rock says, what you gonna do when the 24... No, wait, that's not it, that's not it. That's not it. <laughs> Hold on, that's not it. Oh, this is it, this is it. To be the man, woo, you gotta beat... No, wait, that's not it. <laughs> that's not it. Oh, this is it. Ooh, yeah, dick... Oh, damn it, that's not it either. Don't worry, yours is no better. Oh, wait, this is it. This is it. I am the best there is, the best of... No, wait, that's not it either. <laughs> that damn sure ain't it. This is it. The most electrifying line in sports entertainment today. If you smell what the rock is cooking... Somebody hit my music. Oh, man. Let's get it on.
All right, so a few quick notes here. Number one, as you heard there, we now have two title matches scheduled for tonight. The Rock will put his WWF title on the line against Triple H, and in a rematch from Rock Bottom, the New Age Outlaws will defend their WWF Tag Team Championships against Ken Shamrock and the Big Boss Man. Number two, I had to get a kick out of Shawn Michaels calling Triple H, quote, mid-card for life, and saying Hunter's never been in a main event. Let's just say that may end up changing at some point in the future. And number three, probably the most memorable part of this segment is at the end, when The Rock runs down a bunch of catchphrases of WCW wrestlers, which is, of course, fucking amazing. However, I will note that Rock actually did a similar promo just one week prior at Capital Carnage, and I didn't play that version of the promo last week on this podcast, but I'm going to include it at the tail end of this one. And also... When Rock imitates Bret Hart's catchphrase, you can obviously see HBK laughing his ass off because, you know, it's funny that he helped screw over Bret. Hilarious. But anyway, with all that being said, Sal, what did you think of the DX parody and the subsequent response from the corporation? Well, first of all, I love this parody, and it's funny because when I asked to be on this particular episode, I had no idea we were getting this parody at this point. Ah, you you lucked out there. I did. Now, a couple of things about the parody. Number one, Triple H as the Croc is the best character he's ever played. Yeah, he although should, I will say... He should wrestle as the Croc all the time. <laughs> yeah, right. Although I will say his his vocal impression of the Rock does not really sound anything like the Rock. Did See, you that's your that? opinion, because I like it when he goes, and his old corporate head <laughs> yeah. up his old corporate ass. I yep. enjoy it. Uh, also, the Stooges being attached to uh, Road Dog playing Vince McMahon's ass was fucking hilarious. Mr. Briscoe, Mr. Patterson, how did my ass taste? And they're like, yes. very good, Mr. McMahon. Yep. Um, and did you notice that when Jason Sensation came out and the first thing you heard was his voice, the crowd started booing. They legit thought it was Sean. <laughs> yeah, I think so, actually. And to Jason Sensation's credit, not only a great imitation – but I love the basketball. Yep. And did you notice the gum chewing? Yes. That was classic Sean right there. That was beautiful. Yeah. I, I mean, it's pretty impressive that he can do all these impressive. Obviously, you know, back during the, the Nation of Domination parody, he did Owen Hart, which was completely dead on. And now he's doing Shawn Michaels, which is also completely dead on. And again, I really don't know how this guy wasn't uh, on TV more often because you you would think they'd make more use of him. You got right now, I mean, he, he's in two iconic parodies on you know WWF television. You would think they'd find something else to do with him as well just to get him on TV. But uh, no, I think it's pretty much just uh, just these segments. Yeah, and then that is a shame because that guy was super talented. Um, and even when he was – after he did the Owen impression – he did a few other impressions that night on commentary before Owen and the nation came and beat him up. Uh, That's right. Lawler kept asking him to do like other people. He was doing those pretty good too. So yeah, I think I actually played that clip on that episode of the podcast too. Yeah, at the very least, this guy could have been, you know, I guess present day he definitely could have had like an internet show. Maybe hey, maybe he does right now. Who knows? Uh, also, I did appreciate The Rock at the end with the WCW catchphrases. I thought that was a really nice touch. So so just out of left field that it was amazing. Like, I will say I do like the, the parody of the corporation, but I really feel like The Rock is just so good that he just completely upstaged them entirely at the very end there. And I will say also, 
this is one of the rare interactions where we actually see The Rock and Shawn Michaels playing off of each other in a promo, which, again, I got a kick out of because we don't really get very much of that ever. But you got basically you have Shawn Michaels there, you know, playing off of Rock where he's like, Triple H is only only hangs out with main eventers. He's never been one. And Rock's kind of like going back and forth. And then at the end, of course, with the WCW catchphrases, that was just, I mean, I remember laughing my ass off when he did that, you know, back in 98. I vividly remember, you know, seeing that segment and just thinking it was the funniest fucking thing. I will say, though, it is a bit of like a, um, like a baby face move to do that. But even still, it was just, just fucking amazing. It, it's really kind of, it's kind of funny just to see how far The Rock has come since this heel turn, because when he had that brief babyface run in from like September to November, he was a babyface. The crowd was fully behind him, but he wasn't cutting promos like this. They weren't giving him the opportunity to cut these ridiculous promos that he obviously becomes so famous for. So, I mean, he's just like, since they've given him the title, they've basically just let him run wild and do whatever the fuck he wants. And obviously that proves to be a very successful strategy because he's amazing at it. So yeah, as again, as much as I like the DX parody, I, I do enjoy the, the rock and Shawn Michaels playing off of each other even more. So maybe that's just me. Yeah, no rock is um, like, you can tell and and. I've been a follower of this podcast for many episodes, so you saw where he was kind of starting it out, you know, the whole Jennifer Flowers thing back at WrestleMania 14. Yeah. Um, to where he is now, and it's it's uh, like a, a 180, complete transformation, He's and he's going to get even better, which is the scary thing. His delivery, his timing, uh, his lines, they're going to get even better. I will give a special shout-out on this segment to uh, Billy Gunn, for just completely <laughs> dropping his diaper and bending over and showing the world his ass. I know he's Mr. Ass, but I didn't expect it for him to do that when yeah. he did it in 1998. <laughs> and, yeah, thank and, you. I was uh, going to say thank you for mentioning that because, I mean, you can hear it in the clip, but you might not be able to tell what he's doing. But, yes, at one point, he's Shane McMahon. He's wearing the diaper, and he just pulls off the diaper, and, and has he has a thong on, obviously. He's not, he's not totally showing off his ass, but, yeah. And also, for some reason, I feel like they were trying to set the world record for the word sphincter in one segment. It's kind of bizarre. They which also goes into it a starfish, which I thought was nice. Star, right, starfish. And yeah, the, also kind of – the one thing I will note, though, X-Pac, was he supposed to be dressed as Ken Shamrock? Because he that's, looked – it looked like he was wearing like an Afro wig. That's the only thing else I was going to say is I, I get the whole – he had like a generic WWF attitude shirt on and like black pants. And I get that because he's not jacked like Shamrock. Um, I think he had some fake muscles underneath it, but yeah, the, the weird black Afro Shamrock's hair doesn't look like that. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like that X-Pac was like flashing back to the, the, uh, nation of domination parody. He's like, Oh, I wore a wig when I was Mark Henry. Maybe I'll just wear the exact same wig and be Ken Shamrock for some reason. <laughs> um, and I, I also appreciated the five knuckle shuffle. Uh, specifically when he cornered Jason Sensation in the corner, and Jason yeah. Sensation just has that face on, like, whoa, whoa, buddy, get your yeah. junk out of my face. The Croc thinks Kenny needs to switch to decaf. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also thought it was weird, though, like, I've obviously criticized uh, Xbox mic skills. He only gets the one line, and he says it twice for some reason. He's, he does the five-knuckle shuffle thing twice, so 
I guess maybe they, they thought they could only trust him with one line. So there, so there you go. He he makes a very a very nice impression in the the very brief line that he was given there. So I, I will give X Pac props there, as opposed to a few weeks ago where he's asking Shawn Michaels how big his butthole must be. So and to tie it into the to the segment, you know, opening the night, how about Triple H off TV for X amount of months? comes right back and he's getting a world title match in the main event on raw yeah uh, the rock versus triple h in the main event for the very first time so again something else which will end up happening and i will also give credit to triple h too because when the rock is doing the wcw catchphrases and he's kind of like no no this is the this is it this is the one and triple h just kind of blurts out like don't worry yours is no better <laughs> <laughs> that was great Again, and again, that's another early thing where you see The Rock and Triple H playing off each other, too, which is obviously, a, I'm never going to, you know, I'm never going to be opposed to that, to, you know, two guys who are amazing on the mic, kind of having a back and forth. So, yeah, thumbs up all around. Obviously, it killed a lot of TV time right there, probably about 15 minutes of the opening segment. But, you know, that's the attitude error for you. And if you're going to do, if you're going to kill 15 minutes, it better be entertaining. And God damn it, that was a the very entertaining opening segment, which, of course, ends up setting up two matches for later. We have our world title match. And we have a tag team title rematch, so off to a good start. Absolutely. So after a commercial break, we get a random shot backstage of Vince McMahon basically giving a pep talk to the entire corporation. He says The Rock will take out Triple H, Shamrock and Bossman will take out the Outlaws, and then interestingly, he apparently has something in store for Kane as well, so I guess we'll see what happens there. And from there, we head back into the arena for our first match, Val Venus and the Godfather, accompanied by Two Hoes, versus Brood members Edge and Christian, accompanied by Gangrel, who does not have his usual goblet of blood for some reason. Now, wait a minute here. Edge and Christian? Could it be? Yes, in fact it is. Sal, this is the very first time that Edge and Christian have been a tag team together on our timeline. Now, all three members of the Brood have teamed up for matches before, and Edge has also been teaming up periodically with Gangrel, but this is literally the very first time that Edge and Christian have teamed up on their own. So, I bet you didn't realize you were witnessing history here tonight, huh? Eh, we'll never work. Yeah, it doesn't work for me. It's not, not a good pairing. No, no chemistry between those two. So during uh, this speaking match, speaking of doesn't work. Oh on yeah. A side note, real quick. Um, I have, you know, everybody seems to remember with rose-colored glasses, uh, Val Venus's promo skills. Oh. Uh uh-uh. uh Moaning in Tacoma. Yeah. Awful. Awful. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I, I didn't make a note of that, but yeah. Also, the one I think on the pay-per-view was pretty bad too. It was something I think it was like along the lines because it's close to Christmas time. It was like a Yule log. Right? Yeah. Look. Very bad. Very bad. He, he has, like, one good promo during during the Attitude Era every, like, six months. The <laughs> yeah. rest in between are all pretty much garbage. Yeah, they, they tend to run out of the sexual innuendos pretty quickly. There, But there are some there are some that stand out for me where he says, you know, like, the big Valboski is a lot like a Rubik's Cube. The longer you play with it, the harder it gets. Like that, that one, I remember that getting a chuckle out of that one. Yeah, that was pretty that good. That one I will give credit to. But and I think there's also there's also one where he likens the big Valboski to a clock because you just have to put two hands and a face on it. That was pretty good, too. That was pretty good, too. But other than that, like, those are the ones I can think of offhand because most of the other ones are just kind of uh, uh, pretty terrible. Yeah, absolutely. So... So during this match, we got another bizarre Michael Cole line. And Sal, let me know if you caught this one. So the Godfather does that move where he twists your arm and then hits you with a crescent kick to the face. And that caused Cole to say, quote, What a kick by the martial, martial arts, arts expert, arts the Godfather. Expert. Yeah. That's yes. right. 
That's and I literally yeah. was like, wait, the Godfather, the martial arts expert? I know he was in the brawl for all, but... But he was not using martial arts in the brawl for all. He was just beating people's asses. Yeah, that didn't make any sense to me. I, and I kept thinking, like, I missed something. Like, maybe he... <laughs> Maybe, you know, maybe in the past episodes of Raw, he's been doing, like, a lot of kicks or something. Like, No, I think maybe that was, like, hearkening back to his Kama Mustafa Supreme fighting machine gimmick. Per maybe? I, dude, I don't that know. was four years ago at this point. I know. Point. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, Michael. So, Cole. yeah, he, that that 330-pound martial arts expert who we have never seen do any actual martial arts. But, yeah, good good call, Cole. Good call. You know, during the break, they were like, Cole, why'd you call him the martial arts expert? And Cole was like, well, it says right here on my sheet, black man, martial arts expert. <laughs> right. Oh, oh, that was supposed to be Steve Blackman. Oh, damn it. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> so, yes, the finish of the match came when Gangrel got up on the ring apron to try and interfere, but Val Venus knocked him to the floor. And from there, Christian attempted a clothesline, but Val ducked, hit him with a fisherman suplex, and that was actually enough to score the one, the two, and the three, giving the victory to the team, which may or may not be called supply and demand. And after the match, Gangrel, of all people, proceeds to pick up a microphone. He yells that the next time we see the brood tonight, there's going to be a bloodbath. What could that mean? Stay tuned. So, Sal, what did you think of our opening match? Yeah, I like the fact that they got the Ring of Fire entrance. There you go. Brood when they start, and then you know Gangrel after the match saying that there was going to be a bloodbath um, because of what we have heard in the Attitude Era up to this point. I started thinking, shouldn't it be a strange red liquid bath? <laughs> I made a note of that later too. Actually, it's a it's a viscous liquid bath. Yeah, that I, I I'll touch on that a little bit later too because yeah that I was like how is how are they allowed to say bloodbath but Gangrel can't drink blood it, whatever so and speak, since you had just mentioned Steve Blackman that's a good tie-in after commercial break we go backstage where a gross goatee sporting Kevin Kelly is interviewing Steve Blackman now the lethal weapon says he's going to unmask the blue blazer tonight and prove to the world that it's Owen Hart inside of the costume however. I couldn't help but notice that Blackman was wearing a t-shirt with the old WWF Block logo on it. I mean, dude, they've been using the Scratch logo for like a year now. Get a new goddamn shirt. But anyway, that does indeed segue us into our next match, Goldust versus the aforementioned Blue Blazer. And this was actually another pretty short match with Goldust controlling most of it. At one point, he hit the Blue Blazer with his curtain call finisher, and then he motioned for the corner turnbuckle as though he was going to attempt Shattered Dreams. And I have to say, the Tacoma crowd gave a fucking huge pop to the notion of the Blue Blazer getting Shattered Dreams. Again, really good crowd tonight. Yeah, kick him in the junk! <laughs> yeah, woo! <laughs> So, so so Goldust then does indeed prop up the blazer in the corner, but before he could deliver the kick to the balls, 2018 WWE Hall of Famer Jeff Jarrett ran out from the crowd and nailed Goldust from behind, causing the disqualification. Fortunately for Goldust, though, Steve Blackman quickly ran out from backstage to provide some backup. With Goldust and Jarrett brawling on the floor, Blackman nailed the blazer with a bicycle kick, and then, true to his word, he proceeded to unmask the Blue Blazer. And here we go. Blackman going to try to take the mask off of the Blue Blazer. Can he, he do it? Jeff, help me. Come on, Blazer. Can he do it? He's got the mask almost off. Here it comes. Oh, it's Owen Hart. The Blazer is Owen Hart. There you go, King. Mr. Know-It-All. I can't believe it. Mr. Know-It-All. 
So there you have it, the Blue Blazer is indeed Owen Hart. Although, really, since we've seen Owen and the Blazer together on many occasions in the past, I guess you could say that it was only Owen in the costume tonight, if you wanted to make that argument, but the commentators are certainly playing it off as though we have a definitive answer as to who the Blazer is. So, Sal, what did you think of this match and the revelation that it was Owen inside of the costume? I was completely shocked. (laughs) I know. The Blazer was Owen Hart. So was Jerry Lawler, apparently. Although, for continuity, what they should have did is had uh, Jeff Jarrett not come out and have Owen be revealed, and then have another Blue Blazer come out, and then have that one be revealed as to be Jeff Jarrett. Because that would have at least made sense. Like, okay, he was Blazer that week, and then he was Blazer. So, uh, that would have been a nice touch. Although, Michael Cole kind of ruined it for me, because he, he kept saying after the reveal, See? I told you, Jerry. See? You know it all? See? But again, it doesn't necessarily prove anything because we've seen other people with Owen Hart in the Blue Blazer costume. So, I mean, yeah. it, it doesn't necessarily prove Cole's point, although obviously for the for the purposes of this, that's the way they're doing it. But I honestly don't remember where the angle goes from here because obviously we know that uh, the Blue Blazer is still going to be around five months from now. But, I mean, now that they've unmasked Owen as the Blazer, I honestly don't recall where it goes from here. So this is going to be this is going to be a journey for me as well. Maybe you remember how it how it ends up playing out, but I uh, I do not. I would say, in hindsight, at this point, it would have been better if they dropped the angle, but instead something else dropped. <laughs> Jeez. I have no idea what you mean by that. So after that, we get a quick cut backstage where we see a slow-motion shot of Mark Henry attempting to look sexy... And not only that, but we get the debut of his brand new sexual chocolate theme song playing in the background. A bit strange, but now we know that Mark Henry is indeed sexy. And he's also a 2018 WWE Hall of Famer as well. So Sal, what do you think of that induction? Do you think Mark Henry's a worthy choice? Uh, well, Mark Henry makes more sense than Jeff Jarrett, but <laughs> that that's a whole other can of worms that I'm not opening. Um... Mark Henry, long career, former world heavyweight champion. I say if he doesn't have the Hall of Pain part of his career, he does not get in. Mm. So for that alone, I will say good choice. I'm legit hoping Cena inducts him and he wears the salmon jacket and then just attacks him again <laughs> and and does the whole, I, I still got a lot left in the tank. I'm, I'm just hoping that'll happen. But do, do we know who's inducting Mark Henry? We, we don't yet, but and I will say that that's another thing that, to me, uh, makes Mark Henry a Hall of Famer. I hate to say that one skit can make somebody a Hall of Famer, but everybody remembers the Salmon Jack, Jacket fake retirement segment. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so good. You can still go back and watch that, and it's, it's fucking amazing. And like you said, the Hall of Pain, I mean... It's kind of funny that that was, what was that, like 2011, 2012 when he was doing Hall of Pain? Yeah, I think right around that time, yeah. It's kind of, it's it's a real testament to him because that's about, you know, what, 15 years into his career. And you could just, you know, if that was, if that gimmick didn't go well, the Hall of Pain thing, it could be like, oh, great, yeah, you know, Mark Henry's been around, they're finally giving him a title shot, whatever. But he was so good by the time that rolled around and he was doing the Hall of Pain that it was like, yeah, absolutely, this guy should have the fucking belt. He's just, he's killing people. He's actually having pretty solid matches. Uh, at that point, I think Orton was the one he took the title from. So, yeah, I, I remember absolutely loving the Hall of Pain gimmick. And truthfully, even without the Hall of Pain, I think I would still, I, I think I would still call him a Hall of Famer just by virtue of having at this point, I think, yeah, 22 years because he debuted in 96, I think, shortly after the Olympics. So, yeah, I mean, 
based on that alone and creating so many <laughs> indelible memories, some of them good, some of them bad, and touching on that sexual chocolate gimmick, most of those will probably be bad. But yeah, I, I still think he'd he'd probably be a worthy a worthy choice just by virtue of having such a long career. So yeah, the longevity yeah. as well as the you know the comedy that he he would do during the Attitude Era. And to be able to to flip that switch and turn into you know a killer later on in his career, you know you, you watch Mark Henry when he first got signed from the Olympics be a very very green you know very large wrestler but very you know underdeveloped and, and, and very bland too yeah and very bland and then he started showing personality and and really turned it into a twenty year career so good on him. Absolutely. Although, I mean, I think it helped that he actually signed like a 10-year contract right out of the gate. But, well, <laughs> but, yeah, but I even mean... still, but even still, by the time that contract ran out, they were like, yeah, let's, let's fucking renew him because he's actually starting to get good. So, but uh, yeah, I, again, I would totally say, in my opinion, absolute thumbs up on Mark Henry going in. I have, I have no issue with that. And uh, yeah, I still wish they had given him the title after that, uh, that, that salmon jacket induction, but uh, that, that's a whole other story. Obviously, Cena ends up beating him, but man, that was that's a fucking all-time moment. And one of the, one, I would say one of the few moments from the past, like, I don't know, 10 years or so on Raw that I really point to that stands out as being like an all-time classic moment. Right. Would, would you agree not, on that? There's not too many that hold up in the past 10 years, but yeah. I would definitely agree the salmon jacket is up there. Absolutely. Uh, either that or the debut of the Nexus, that that initial attack, those are probably the two from the past 10 years that stand out for me the most. Well, there is one other one from the past 10 years. I, You know, albeit for me to mention it, because I know certain people on my feed don't particularly like this person, but mm. I would say that the pipe bomb was one of the most memorable yep. uh, events on Raw. And I would also say the return of Brock. Would be a pretty good one. Oh yeah, when he f five Cena, that was that yeah. was true. Yeah, even though most people at that point obviously knew it was coming because they were chanting for him before he even came out. But even still, I thought that was a, that was a fantastic moment too. So yeah, but uh, but on, in terms of Mark Henry being a Hall of Famer, definite thumbs up uh, or, or Hall of Painter, if you will. Hall of Painter, exactly. Yep. So after we get that uh, that introduction to the sexual chocolate theme song which is which is pretty pretty awesome by the way uh we we cut backstage where we see dx and the corporation being separated by a group of wwf officials as they attempt to go after each other i mean geez guys it all seems so good natured earlier on when you were making fun of each other what gives now it's just escalating but i guess uh i guess they just couldn't handle the rock making fun of all those wcw catchphrases wait 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 why would WWF officials prevent the corporation from doing anything? Oh, that's a that's a good point, actually. Like, you know, we're talking about this is the boss's group. Why wouldn't they just hold back DX and let the corporation get in free shots? All of those officials are now fired. <laughs> <laughs> so from there, we head back to the arena for our next match, and it is the aforementioned Mark Henry and D'Lo Brown, once again accompanied by Terry Reynolds and Jacqueline, versus Job Squad members Scorpio and Bob Holly, who are accompanied by Al Snow, the Blue Meanie, and WWF light heavyweight champion Dwayne Gill. Before the match begins, however, talking about showing off some of that Mark Henry personality, well, he grabs a microphone and let's listen to what Sexual Chocolate has to say. Now, I got one thing to say, and that is... that I am a lover and not a fighter. 
Sexual chop. Sexual chop. I didn't chop. come out here to fight tonight. Wait a minute, what? No. You're supposed to have a match. I didn't come out here to fight, but I did come out here to tell everybody a bedtime story. What? A bedtime story? No more poetry, I hope. And that is what happened on China and I's date. Uh-oh. Uh -oh. This uh -oh. is what you were talking about, King. Oh, yeah, I heard about this. All the details. The details coming up. Now, first, she invited me up to her room in that sexy voice of hers. And she said, Mark, <laughs> I want you to slip into something just a little more comfortable. Whoa. Uh-oh. My bed. Oh, oh man. <laughs> Go ahead, Mark. Now, D-Lo, you know, because you had the camera roll. The camera rolling? D-Lo caught it on tape. And I, I consider myself to be a well-tuned athlete and a finely, finely tuned machine. But, oh, Lord, she just wore me out. <laughs> oh, man. I love sports entertainment. So first of all, obviously Mark Henry is lying here because, I mean, China having a sex tape? Certainly, that would never happen. No, sir. No, sir. Can't buy that. But anyway, as for the match itself, it was nothing to write home about. The finish came when Terry was distracting the other members of the job squad, which somehow also distracted referee Tim White. That allowed Jacqueline to climb the turnbuckle and hit Bob Holly with a top rope dropkick, which, of course, Holly basically didn't react to at all, because you just know that curmudgeonly asshole won't be selling for a woman. From there, however, Mark Henry was able to hit Holly with a power slam, and that was good enough to secure the victory for Henry and D'Lo. So, Sal, what were your thoughts on Mark Henry's promo and the subsequent match? Uh, Mark Henry's promo was, was interesting in the sense that even taking all of the real-life aspects that we know now out of it, for him to go on a date with China and then be like, hey, guess what? I banged her, and not only did I bang her, but D'Lo videotaped it. <laughs> uh, you know, kind of a little swerve. You know, you'd think that Mark Henry's uh, going to be a gentleman about it, but instead he goes the other route and really is kind of a scumbag about the whole thing. So I'm, yep. sure, I'm sure China would not be happy about that. Uh, as far as the match goes, see, you said that that Bob Hawley no-sold uh, Jacqueline's dropkick when I said that she missed completely. Oh, well, yeah, maybe that, that could also be a factor, too. <laughs> Uh, and again, it's another job squad match, but good character development on Mark Henry. Yeah, we're getting a lot of job squad lately, I will say. I think it's the episode, might be the episode actually after Survivor Series where they get three matches in one night. So yeah, that they're really, uh, they're really ramming the job squad down our throats at this point. So yeah, but, uh, yeah, in terms of the match again, nothing too special, but, um, yeah, Mark Henry it seemed like they may, after that date with China, they may be trying to turn Mark Henry face because he was kind of, you know, gentlemanly on the date and he, you know, helped China beat up those guys who were, you know, hitting on her. But then, of course, we just go right back to uh, to Mark Henry basically being a dick and saying, yeah, I fucking uh, had sex with her and uh, D'Lo apparently filmed her against her will. So, yeah, that's uh, clearly they're staying in the uh, in the heel territory here with Mark Henry. So exactly is what it is. And now, it's time for our next match, and it is 
our WWF Tag Team Title Rematch, Champions the New Age Outlaws versus Challengers Ken Shamrock and the Big Boss Man, accompanied by Commissioner Shawn Michaels. Now, early on in the match, the Big Boss Man tried to do that spot where one guy is lying on the ground by the turnpost and the other guy pulls his legs toward the post and crotches him. Instead, however, Billy pulled his legs back, which ran Boss Man face-first into the post. However, this was the point when the entire match turned around because, behind referee Earl Hebner's back, Ken Shamrock smacked Billy in the ankle with a steel chair. And from there, the majority of the match consisted of Shamrock and Boss Man working over Billy's injured ankle, and I have to say, Mr. S did a really good job of selling it. Eventually, he was able to make the hot tag to Road Dog, and he worked over the heels for about a minute before tagging Billy right back into the match. And clearly, that's a pretty questionable decision since, you know, he can barely walk at this point. And in fact, when Billy gets tagged back in, he's literally jumping around on one leg, trying to fight off both opponents. However, he manages to hold his own, and he ends up setting Shamrock up for a pile driver, but at that point... Shawn Michaels jumped up on the ring apron to distract him. Billy grabbed HBK by his suit coat, but then he let him go because Shamrock was recovering behind him. Unfortunately for Billy, as soon as he turned his back on the commissioner, HBK smacked him in the head with the boss man's nightstick behind Hebner's back. Shamrock then put the ankle lock on Mr. Ass, who was clearly unconscious at this point. Hebner then dropped Billy's arm once, twice, and then a third time, which means that your winners and the new WWF Tag Team Champions are Ken Shamrock and the Big Boss Man. Although, this was a tad confusing for me because we literally just had an angle last night where The Rock kept his title because he passed out and didn't get pinned or submit, which is the exact same thing that happened here. I mean, logically, shouldn't that mean that the Outlaws also get to keep their titles? Incredibly bizarre. But regardless, Shamrock and Bossman are the new tag team champions, ending the Outlaws' three-and-a-half-month reign with the titles. And not only that, but with that victory, the corporation now has the majority of the titles in the WWF, with the only exceptions being Xbox's European title and Dwayne Gill's light heavyweight championship. Who would have guessed that one? But anyway, Sal, what did you think of this match and the crowning of the new WWF Tag Team Champions of the World? Alright, this match was a little bit difficult for me to to rate because on the one hand, I thought it was a good match. I thought Billy Gunn, like you said, did a good job, uh, especially selling the ankle injury. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it had that Vince Russo booking about it where it never was announced as a no-DQ match. They're hiding things from the ref, but then at one point, Road Dog just kicks Bossman right in the dick. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true, he does. I, and right in front of the ref, and I'm like, what, uh, okay? Maybe it was his inner thigh. And then, right. um, like you said, when, when he tagged in Road Dog, here comes Road Dog, house of fire, crowd's behind him, and Road Dog tags out. Yeah, he tags back out to his partner, who has clearly been injured over the past several minutes and is literally hobbling on one leg. Yeah, that kind of threw me a little bit. And then, you know, like you said, don't do that spot at the end where, where he passes out in the ankle lock and they lift his arm three times. You just did that the night before. The opposite uh, decision was made the night before where Rock gets to keep his title. Just have Shamrock fucking pin him. Exactly, exactly. I mean, literally, you outbook yourself at the ending of that one. So, 
Yeah, Shawn Michaels clearly knocked him unconscious with the nightstick. So you could just you, that's you could just go right into a pinfall right there. Yeah, so. and and that has the same dramatic effect of of you know the ref counting three and awarding the the corporation the tag title. So the Absolutely. whole arm thing was completely unnecessary. It's also an interesting thing too because now the Outlaws have lost the titles and they've pretty much had the titles almost the entirety of '98. So head, heading into '98, they were the champs. They lost the titles. For one night at WrestleMania in the dumpster match, they won it back the next night. I think they lost the titles to Kane and Mankind over the summer, but then they won it back at SummerSlam. And now, about three and a half months later, they've lost the belt. So I think I think about, probably about 10 months of 98, they've had the titles either in one form or fashion or the other. So yeah, their their reign has now ended, and it is Ken Shamrock and the big boss man. Shamrock, obviously, also the IC champion. Boss man, the hardcore champion. So between the two of them, really... Uh, really propping up the corporation quite nicely at this point. But that's smart, because you want the corporation to be hated and have all the titles. Absolutely. And again, this is also something kind of funny to see. We're still at the point where the big boss man is being booked very convincingly. So, spoiler alert, that won't happen. uh, That will not happen forever. But he's still being booked as a convincing threat about two months into his run. So, yeah. That Good being times. said, is this the most titles the boss man's ever won, and it's at this point in his career? Yeah, I don't think he had won any titles. No, I was going to say right? I thought maybe him and um, Akeem were the tag champs, but I don't, I don't think they actually ever won them. No, they didn't. They did not. And we saw at on the WrestleMania Seven episode of WrestleMania Salvation, we did. He challenged against Mister Perfect for the Intercontinental Title, but uh, he did not win. Yeah, he was defending the honor of his mama. That's right. Even with Andre the Giant's interference, he did not win, so... Right. Too bad. But yeah, I think these are... Yeah, the hardcore title, I guess, must have been Bossman's first title in the WWF, and then shortly thereafter, he wins the tag titles, so good for him. Good for Bossman, I guess. And of course, Shamrock's still still going along pretty strong as well. And then, our next segment, speaking of the corporation, actually, after a commercial break, Vince and Shane McMahon are now heading down the aisle, and when they enter the ring, we can see that a tumbler is set up on a table. So Vince says that because Mankind put Mr. Sacco on both of them last night, and because Kane meddled in the Buried Alive match, Mankind and Kane will now have to face each other tonight in a no-holds-barred match. Big news there. And then the McMahons turn their attention to Stone Cold Steve Austin. So since Austin won the Buried Alive match, he did indeed qualify for the Royal Rumble match, so Vince and Shane will now pull his number out of the classic Royal Rumble number tumbler. And sure enough, the number Vince pulls out is number one. What are the odds? However, Shane says that because it's the holiday season, he's willing to give Austin another chance, so he proceeds to draw a new number from the tumbler and... Wouldn't you know it, the number Shane pulls out is also number one. So it's official, Stone Cold will be the first man to enter the Royal Rumble. Not only that, but Vince then proceeds to sweeten the pot even further by saying that whichever man throws Austin over the top rope will receive a $100,000 bonus. So not only does Austin have to overcome the odds, he also has to overcome a bounty on his head. And in addition to that, Vince then says that he's going to announce another participant in the Royal Rumble match, so let's find out who it will be. Tonight, we will name one other participant in this Royal Rumble other than Stone Cold Steve Austin. 
That individual, ladies and gentlemen, is a superstar who certainly at least equals the skills of Stone Cold Steve Austin. Who is this? That individual, ladies and gentlemen, is probably the only superstar in sports entertainment who could possibly save Ted Turner's WCW. Who's he talking about, Ted? What? What? But the World Wrestling Federation has him. And he will compete for the very first time ever in the Royal Rumble. What? Shane, would you please do the honors? A free agent signing? Ladies and gentlemen, this is big. the McMahon family is proud to present the most omniscient, the most omnipotent sports entertainer in the history of sports entertainment. Give it up, ladies and gentlemen, for Mr. Vincent K. McMahon. What? What? Mr. McMahon's going to compete in the Royal Rumble? What? First off, they rigged the tumble. You're right. damn right. He's... Oh, my. Now then, just to show you that this luck of the draws on the up and up, Shane, I want to know what number I'll be entered at, and I just hope it's number two. Well, I mean, they've already rigged the tumbler, so it's got to be number one or two. Vince in the rumble. Give me a break. Wait a minute, wait a minute. And Vince McMahon will enter the World Wrestling Federation's Royal Rumble as number 30. I'm sorry. There's only 30 men in the rumble. Austin, he's number one, I'm number 30. Oh, man. That seems fair to me. You see, Austin, there's just one more reason other than 100,000 of them why there is no chance in hell you'll ever again be the World Wrestling Federation champion. So Vince McMahon will be in the Royal Rumble, and he will enter at number 30. However, no sooner does Vince finish his promo than we see Mankind on the Titantron. He says that since Vince is now apparently a wrestler, instead of Mankind facing Kane tonight, perhaps instead he should face Vince McMahon. Foley tells him that he hopes he has the testicular fortitude to accept, and that is how the segment ends. So Sal, what did you think of Austin having his number drawn, and Vince McMahon, for some reason, entering himself into the rumble holy shit you know (laughs) vince shows me right here in this one segment just how good of a heel he was yes i mean fucking amazing work by him with the tumbler uh pulling number one and then being like all right well it's the holidays let's give him another chance oh look it's number one again he, (laughs) he had that tacoma crowd in the palm of his hand um, Shane, Shane also doing some good work there too, where Vince is saying that when he draws his number, he wants number two, and Vince pulls out the, or rather, when Shane pulls out the number and it's number thirty, he's like, "You're number 30 I'm sorry, I'm sorry." Like, <laughs> yeah, like, d- definitely good by Shane. Um, I feel like such a dumb mark because even this day and age, as I'm watching this, and he says that I'm going to announce a participant, and quite frankly, the only man that could save Ted Turner's WCW. <laughs> Right. I'm like, oh, who's he bringing out? I don't remember this. Well, who's it going to be? 
then he announces it, is it, himself. Is it Bret Hart? Is Bret Hart coming back? And then he announces himself, and I'm like, oh, I feel dumb. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's my main question is, from you know a kayfabe perspective, why the fuck would Vince McMahon enter himself in the Royal Rumble in the first place? Um, it doesn't seem to make any sense. It doesn't, but I did like the idea of them of him putting a bounty on Austin's head, $100,000 for the man who eliminates him. Also, it kind of plays into it because, you know, not to get too spoilery, I, I don't think Vince has to pay anybody that bounty. <laughs> That's true. I mean, even from Vince's perspective, he enters himself at number 30, obviously. What does he think is the best case scenario? Because by the end there, if he enters the Rumble at number 30, there's still a good chance there's going to be you know, five or six guys around who could kick his ass, right? I mean, he's not a wrestler. So I'd, I, I'm i just a little confused as to, to Vince's motivations. But with that being said, it was it was a really fun segment. It was an awesome segment with Vince and Shane playing off each other. But uh, yeah, I, I, from a kayfabe perspective, I'm just a little bit confused as to why Vince would even, even at number 30, why he would put himself into the Rumble. So I don't know. I guess we'll end up seeing how that one plays out as well. But uh, r- really fun segment. And now we know. Stone Cold Steve Austin has to enter at number one. And also, again, I'm, I'm going to give a quick, uh, a quick criticism of Michael Cole where he's saying, oh, obviously Vince rigged the drawing, so he's going to be number two. It's like, it's like, yeah, why would Vince Vince would rig the drawing? He would enter himself in the Rumble and rig it so he would have the hardest path. You would think he would rig it so he'd have the easiest path, right? So, Right. Well, when the two first picks were number one, the idea was the whole tumble had only ones and twos in it. Right, right. Um, but but even still, I, I, Vince was obviously saying he hoped he was going to be number two. But from Cole's perspective, you you got to figure that he's not going to, you know. Yeah. No, he, he's going to give himself the easiest path. But Also, um, I got to give credit to Vince here because, you know, he announces the bounty on Austin's head. But he the way he delivers the price tag, I will give $100,000 to the man that eliminates Stone Cold Steve Austin. And the crowd rose up for it. They were like, oh, shit, Austin's got a $100,000 bounty on his head. (laughs) Yep. So good all around by Vince. Good good job by the owner of the company. Good stuff. And I guess we'll see how he does when he enters the Royal Rumble at number 30. Also, you had mentioned that, that Vince isn't a wrestler, but if you take a look at Vince with his shirt off, he looks more of a wrestler than Dwayne Gill does. <laughs> That's true. We did see him at Over the Edge wearing that referee shirt that was about six sizes too small. <laughs> so, yeah, he's keeping him. He's keeping himself in good shape. And actually, we do get a quick peek of him uh, on this show. On this show, yeah, yeah. He's in. I think he's in a tank top, and he, he's kind of looks like Hulk Hogan at that point. <laughs> yeah, body by Doctor Zahorian, clearly. <laughs> so. So after a commercial break, it's now time for our next match, and it is a guitar-on-a-pole match. Jeff Jarrett, accompanied by Deborah versus Steve Blackman. And before the match begins, Double J grabs a mic and says that Deborah will definitely not be stripping tonight, but Deborah then takes the mic from him and says she doesn't know about that because she had such a good time doing it last night, she may want to do it again. And suddenly, I've just realized that this match hits the Vince Russo trifecta. Number one, it has Jeff Jarrett. Number two, it's an object on a pole match. And number three, it features a sexy woman who just wants to get naked. Sal, I think we have Russo Bingo, R-U-S-S-O, and Russo was his name-o. We've done it. So shortly into the match, Blackman clotheslines Jarrett over the top rope, and he appears ready to go for the guitar. But Deborah comes into the ring and distracts him by starting to strip. 
Meanwhile, Jarrett manages to climb to the top rope and retrieve the guitar from the pole. But the match isn't over yet because you still need to pin your opponent. I'm just making sure that's clear because they didn't outline the rules in advance, so I was pretty confused. Right. So Blackman, he manages to take the guitar away from Jarrett, and he swings it at him, but he completely misses, so Jarrett puts him in a headlock. From there, Blackman defensively pushes Jarrett away, but he collides with Jimmy Corderas, knocking him to the arena floor. So yes, we have a ref bump in a match, which should, in theory, be a no-DQ match, since it revolves around a fucking guitar being used as a weapon. Yeesh. Ugh. And as if this wasn't convoluted enough, Owen Hart then emerges from backstage with a guitar of his own. He cracks it over Blackman's head, Jarrett covers him, Owen revives the referee, and Corderas then does indeed count to three. I think someone needs to explain this to me. So couldn't Owen have just interfered without any repercussions since it's a no-DQ match? Or are you only allowed to use the guitar as a weapon but the other standard rules of wrestling apply? Suddenly I feel like I need to lie down because everything is starting to smell like burnt toast. But anyway, Sal, what did you what did you think of this match? I think that this was the match that Vince McMahon turned to Pat Patterson after it, it was over and said, you know what, don't renew Russo's contract. Let him walk. Who gives a shit? <laughs> yeah. Because this was, as you mentioned, the classic Russo trifecta. Jeff Jarrett, number one. Something on a pole, number two. And then some woman who wants to get naked, number three. Classic. And to be quite honest, it made no fucking sense. The entire match made no sense. And then why did they need two guitars? I don't... Really? <laughs> no, no need whatsoever. Oh, this really no need whatsoever. Hurt. I think the only thing missing from this to make this a full-on Russo match would be if uh, Jarrett cut a shoot promo before. Yeah, that would be about it. That that, yeah. that and maybe like an Oklahoma sighting or something. Oh, Jesus. Coming soon to Monday Nitro. So yeah, that that match uh, maybe somebody can explain the rules for an for the object on a pole match to me because yeah, this was kind of confusing. I know with like when you do a capture the flag match, once you get the flag, once you climb up and get it, the match is over. Uh, so uh, 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 uh. watch it. Because uh just recently on WWF pay-per-view, they did a uh, flag match with John Cena and Rusev, and even after you grab the flag, you then had to mount the flag on an apparatus on the stage. Oh, okay. Never, well, never mind then. And I guess we I... were, but we were all like, "Wait, what? I thought once you grab the flag, it was done." Well, at this point in time, I'm thinking of the one. I think it was about a year prior where the Hart Foundation was facing some team of Americans. I think Austin was one of them. It was the, it's the one basically where Pillman debuted as a member of the Hart Foundation and interfered and allowed the Canadians to win. So, but yeah, the match just ended when they grabbed the flag. So who even knows? I, I have no idea. I'm, I'm spending too much time thinking of this, but if somebody wants to share the rules of an object on a pole match, by all, by all means, go ahead. Something tells me it doesn't really matter anyway, though, because it's Vince Russo and nothing really matters anyway. Exactly. So we then get a quick cut backstage where we see Tiger Ali Singh freaking out and yelling at Patterson and Briscoe because someone, presumably the brood, has written the word bloodbath in red paint on the wall of his locker room. And something tells me, knowing the roster they had at this point, this probably wasn't the last time Tiger's room got defaced in some form or fashion. Call me crazy. We then go elsewhere backstage where Vince McMahon informs Shane that he will indeed face Mankind here tonight, but he's going to do it his way and not Mankind's way. What exactly does that mean? Stay tuned. 
And from there, we head back to the arena where Tiger Aoi Singh is set to face someone. However, before we can find out who his opponent is, all of the lights in the arena go out, except for the ones spotlighting the ring, which are illuminated red. The Brood's music plays, and Tiger then tries to escape up the aisle, but Gangrel, Edge, and Christian then jump him at the top of the stage. All of the lights are then turned off for about 15 seconds, and when they come back on, we see that Tiger Ali Singh is indeed covered in blood. Presumably not his own, because, well, then he'd be dead. Now, my main question here would be, how come the commentators can never call it blood when Gangrel drinks from his goblet, but the brood can openly say the word bloodbath and cover someone in what is clearly supposed to be blood? Again, doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And also... If they're vampires, wouldn't spilling all of that blood be a complete waste of food for them? I have, I just have so many questions. But anyway, Sal, what did you think of the first ever brood bloodbath? Um, are you familiar with the movie Blade? Loosely. Okay. I know, I know, I know. Triple H was in the third one. Okay. Well, to uh, to give you a brief synopsis, the movie Blade, starring Wesley Snipes, uh, was about vampires. And it was released in theaters on August 21st of 1998. Roughly, you know, about three or four months to this episode, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And um, in the opening scene, they're in a club, like an underground club setting, and the sprinklers go off, but instead of water coming out, it's it's blood. So everybody gets doused in blood. Hmm. So that's kind of where my mind went was, oh, they just ripped the whole thing off a blade. Nice. Probably, yeah. Vince Russo probably got a VHS copy at home and he's like, oh, we should do that. And um, it didn't play off as well on somebody like Tiger Ali Singh because when the lights came back on, you could barely even tell he was covered in blood. Yeah, it was kind of – it wasn't very much. Like I feel like it should have been somebody maybe wearing like – clothes that could look bloodstained and then you know when, when the lights come back on he's like literally in a pool of blood because when the first happened you were like well what i don't get it what's what's the big deal he's just laying there right yeah i will say this the blood that was on him actually looked more realistic like actual blood but i think going forward spoiler there are going to be more of these when they do these blood bats it ends up looking more like red paint which is more pronounced as opposed to, you know, whatever whatever they dumped Tiger Ali Singh with, which, again, looked like real blood. But also the other thing, too, is the Tiger Ali Singh is quite obviously a heel, right. and the brooder, the brooder attacking another heel, so that's, that's a little bit weird. But I will say, though, it did look pretty cool when they had the, the sort of, like, a strobe light effect going with most of the lights out. I thought that looked really cool because they don't actually do that going forward, I don't think. Or maybe they do. I was going to say, when also they- stolen from Blade. Uh-huh. Oh, there you go. <laughs> but but um, no, I I will give him credit for this because the horror movie aspect of the lights going out, and I don't know if it was a plant or not, but there there was a woman who screamed in the crowd. Yes, I heard that. Started, and I thought that was that was a nice touch. It really like brought that feel forward that you were like it, it felt like a horror scene. Yeah, cool, really cool stuff. I I thought it looked really good. But again, yeah, not not nearly as much blood on Tiger Alley Singh as there will be in the future. Spo- spoiler alert there. And after commercial break, it is now time for our next match, Mankind versus Vince McMahon? 
Well, no, apparently not, because instead of Mr. McMahon, Kane just comes to the ring, as Vince had initially scheduled, so sure, why not? So Foley and Kane end up brawling for about four minutes, until Vince McMahon does indeed show up at the top of the ramp. He says that if Foley wants to fight him, it will have to be in the parking lot in a, quote, good old-fashioned street fight, so sure enough, Foley then does indeed just leave the ring, walk up the aisle, and head backstage, presumably leaving Kane all by himself at ringside. However, when we come back from commercial, out of nowhere we see that Ken Shamrock, the big boss man, and a bunch of orderlies in white coats have apparently put Kane into a straitjacket and fastened him to a stretcher, and they are now wheeling him into an ambulance. I mean, Jesus Christ, that was probably the most eventful commercial break of all time, and I think a lot of stuff must have happened there while we were seeing ads for Glover. But sure enough, we then do indeed get footage from during the break where Shamrock and the boss man attacked Kane in the ring with Shane McMahon cheering them on, and the orderlies then managed to put the straitjacket on the big red machine. However, we then just cut to the parking lot where Mankind is now beating the crap out of Vince McMahon. He gets in actually quite a few good shots on Vince until Patterson and Briscoe finally show up to provide some backup, but fully quickly dispatches them. He then pulls out Mr. Sacco, puts it in Vince's mouth, and pushes the chairman into the trunk of a car, but before he can close the door, The Rock shows up to help out Vince. Rock and Foley brawl on top of the hood of a car, where the champ then proceeds to pick up Mick and nail him with a rock bottom right on the hood. Pretty friggin' cool visual there. So Sal, there was so much craziness going on there over the past few segments. What did you think of Kane versus Mankind? Kane being committed to a mental institution, Mankind versus Vince in the parking lot, and The Rock hitting a rock bottom on the hood of a Lincoln Continental. All right, so I'm going to Tarantino it, and I'm going to go backwards. Okay. Uh, rock hitting the rock bottom on the car. That was gorgeous. Yes. <laughs> Fucking sucks for Mick Foley, because that's probably his 19th concussion. <laughs> and you could literally see the dent in the car, which yes. is also a nice touch. But that was a hell of a fucking rock bottom. Also, yeah, Mick Foley really beat the fuck out of Vince in that the you know couple shots he got in there. He looked like he was just hammering him. <laughs> yes, um, I was really confused when they came back from commercial break, and then all of a sudden Kane's in a straitjacket, and I'm sitting here going, "I guess I have to rewind. I must have did the network cut out. What did I miss right. something like?" But apparently, during the commercial break, the corporation comes out, they they mess up Mankind and Kane, uh, a bunch of orderlies come out, and they somehow lock Kane in a straitjacket. That all happened, in reality, in a three-minute commercial break. Yeah, kind of unbelievable they, they squeezed that much in. I don't agree with it. I don't think that you need to do that to your audience, whether it's the live crowd or the TV audience. I think it just adds to a lot of confusion, and people, like, you know, probably hitting rewind back then and being like, wait, wait, did something cut out? Like, And the fans in Tacoma that night were probably like, well, I guess I got time to take a piss or get some popcorn. Oh, wait, no shit, there, there's some orderlies coming out. Now I don't have time to do that. Yeah, they don't have time so. to do anything. Very interesting. I guess maybe that adds to the uh, – I, I don't even know if that adds to the fact that, you know, they're constantly going up against Nitro where it's like, now shit's even happening during the commercial, so you better not switch over to Nitro because if you come back late, you're going to have missed some shit during the ad as well. So Yeah, how about for those people that switched over to Nitro and came back and was like, wait a minute, why is, why is Kane in a straitjacket? Like, <laughs> I missed a lot of shit. Exactly. Uh... Well, I was turning on Hooventude versus Billy Kidman or whatever the fuck was on. 
And so, as if all that lunacy wasn't enough, it is now time for our main event, WWF Championship match, Champion The Rock, accompanied by Commissioner Shawn Michaels, versus Challenger Triple H, accompanied by China. Speaking and by of the Triple way, H, oh yeah, he says, show them to me later, to the girl. In the yes, the, the one who held up the sign saying, show me yours and I'll show you mine. Yes. There you go. Apparently that was effective. Now, by the way, remember how that trainer diagnosed The Rock with broken ribs on Sunday Night Heat last night? Yeah. Well, yeah, well, the recovery time for that injury is about six weeks, and yet Rock is wrestling twice in the past 24 hours. So I guess there are two possibilities here. Either that trainer is a quack and Rock is totally fine, or the WWF is risking the health of its world champion by allowing him to compete. You be the judge. Also, Sal, you may have noticed that Triple H was wearing his purple tights tonight, and I'm pretty sure those are the exact same tights he wore when he beat The Rock for the Intercontinental title at SummerSlam three months ago. So is that a good omen? Well, perhaps we should find out. So we had a fun moment early on here, with Rock and Triple H brawling outside near the barricade. Sal, did you notice Rock grab a fan's beer and throw it at Hunter? Yes. Classic Rock, or what would become classic Rock. Absolutely. But I will say, I bet that fan is probably pretty pissed, because those, those arena beers, they ain't cheap. I don't know, man. Uh, if I was, you know, live at the arena back then and The Rock grabbed my beer, I would have been like, holy shit, The Rock used my beer on TV. <laughs> fair, fair enough. That's good, then. That, I don't think that fan seemed to mind, either. He seemed to be pretty into it. And also, for the second night in a row, The Rock incapacitated his opponent and then he took Michael Cole's headset and commentated the match while slamming Triple H's face into the announce table. Clearly, I think it's safe to say that Rock has realized he's on to something here. So most of the early part of the match, part of the match, I should say, consisted of Rock working over Triple H with a headlock, and then when Hunter tried to fight back, Rock would cut off his momentum and go right back to the headlock. And I know that probably makes the match sound dull, but the crowd was totally into it. Seriously, great fans all night. Fucking Tacoma getting the job done. Absolutely. At one point, at one point when Hunter tried to roll back into the ring, Shawn Michaels grabbed him by the tights, and the two of them proceeded to have a stare down. That caused referee Earl Hebner to exit the ring and get between them, but while he was doing that, China snuck into the ring behind Rock and nailed him with a low blow. Triple H then rolled back in and hit Rock with a DDT but he only got a two count. And once again, the crowd was completely into it. They totally bought that as a finish, even though it was just a friggin' DDT. Really cool. And immediately after that spot, Shawn Michaels tells Hebner to keep an eye on China, so Earl gets in her face. And meanwhile, Triple H hit The Rock with a pedigree, but because Hebner was preoccupied, that allowed HBK to hit Hunter in the back of the head with the title belt. Rock covered Hunter, Hebner re-entered the ring, and he counted the one, the two, but not the three. Triple H kicked out, so we're still going. And at that point, fed up with his interference, China went over to Shawn Michaels and grabbed him by the suit coat, so The Rock told Hebner to go get between them. And while he was doing that, well, let's pick it up from there. Kick that son! Meanwhile, China! What is going on? 
Yes, that's right. While Earl Hebner was trying to separate HBK and China, a man who the commentators could only identify as, quote, Motley Crue's bodyguard came into the ring, hit Triple H with a pump handle slam, and that was enough to score the three count when Hebner returned to the ring. Your winner, and still the WWF champion, The Rock. Now, we first saw this mystery man seven weeks ago in late October when Motley Crue played a few songs on Raw and Sunday Night Heat, and for the record, he was given a name back then. He was clearly referred to as Test because he would come to the microphone before the performances and say, Test, Test, Test. So it appears that Cole and Lawler both completely forgot his name. But now, here he is, almost two months later, apparently the newest member of Vince McMahon's ever-growing corporation. Now, interestingly, when Motley Crue appeared on Raw a few weeks ago, it was actually DX who introduced them, so you may think the test would want to help Triple H, right? Ah, but if you go back to Motley Crue's Sunday Night Heat performance, Test actually got disrespected by the Road Dog. So when Test is out there testing the mic, Road Dog interrupts and says, quote, Enough out of you, the mics work. So Sal, perhaps you could say this was some quality long-term booking? Maybe? Wow. Who knows? Maybe. And also one more thing to note, when Raw is about to go off the air, The Rock, Shawn Michaels, and Test are celebrating, but we can clearly see them reacting to someone running to the ring. However, the show ends before we can see who it is. I'm assuming it was probably the other members of DX, but I couldn't find an explanation anywhere. Perhaps we'll find out next week. But anyway, Sal, what were your thoughts on The Rock versus Triple H and the first in-ring appearance of Test? Great match between The Rock and Triple H. Great you know, main event of Raw. I do remember watching this live for the simple and only reason of Rock saying on commentary that here's a guy who looks like Tarzan but wrestles like Jane. <laughs> now, the funny thing is, is although I remember watching this live, I don't, I didn't remember how it ended. And I was going back and forth like, how did they get out of this? I know Rock doesn't lose the title here. Um, they did a great job when China hit the low blow. The whole crowd bought into it, thinking that Triple H was about to win the title. Absolutely. And then right up until the final minute, I really had no idea like what was going to happen. And then all of a sudden, here comes all six foot eight bodyguard test. And you yep. know what? I was like, oh, shit. This is when he makes his, his in-ring debut. Great spot for him to come in. I think they played that one beautifully. Nobody saw that coming. No, and, nobody probably knew who the fuck he was. And, yeah, and the guy's got such size that, like, it's instant impact for everybody, even in the arena. They're like, oh, shit, that dude just came in. He's obviously helping out the corporation. You know, what a coup by Vince to be able to bring that guy into his fold. I completely forgot this was how Tess debuted. So it was a, it was a surprise for me as well. And I'll say, in terms of Tess... One of the more impressive-looking guys with one of the worst ring names of all time. Yes, that, that's a good point. Fucking test. But I, I did appreciate Michael Cole going, I know who that is. That's the bodyguard from Motley Crue. 
Yeah, with Vince probably on his uh, in his headset at that point. Like, wait, that's who? Who is that? What? That's Motley Crue's bodyguard. Like, basically, like they go. He and Lawler both go for it, probably about like thirty seconds, being like, "Who the fuck is that? I don't know who that is." Before somebody gets in their ear and says, "Oh, that's yeah, Motley Crue's bodyguard. Yeah, yeah, yeah." That's gotta be. So, that's gotta be test. <laughs> right. That's gotta be that guy who tested the microphones. <laughs> in terms of test, are you are you a fan of uh, of tests? performance since we're going to be seeing him quite a bit throughout the attitude era are you are you a test fan uh, not typically <laughs> fair enough um but i will say that this uh debut was very impactful and very well done yes it, it absolutely it, it definitely sets him up as a player early on and again in terms of the corporation it makes the corporation look that much more badass it's like jesus christ they have you know almost all the belts in the company and now they're adding this fucking seven foot monster as well it's it's uh yeah really really making them seem like a like a massive threat like they're already a huge impact stable as it is and they're just getting bigger yeah. so and what yeah. you do when you stack the deck with people like Shawn Michaels people like Ken Shamrock people the size of test it makes you get behind Triple H and Austin even more absolutely to, to finally overcome those odds right right so I thought they did a great job of doing that and I think that's kind of where we're going heading you know into the end of 1998 is is to get you know those those amazing reactions for the people who are going to be going against the corporation and for the record i think this is the right way to go up building a to go about building up a new stable like yeah have them come out not necessarily kick everybody's ass but they're outsmarting people they're constantly adding members they're stacking the deck they're taking all the title belts i think that i mean that's it seems like wrestling 101 but that's you know if you want to make uh, a, a group of guys be a, a clear force that's a good way of going about doing it because i mean they're they're a hateable force they're basically existing at this point to keep the title on the rock but they're also winning the other belts as well so yeah i mean it's definitely it's definitely a great way of going about uh building up the corporation as a convincing a convincing threat so what you yeah, did thumbs and it up. was so smart you had vince as the top heel in the company now obviously you know vince isn't gonna draw that much in a, in a physical in-ring aspect as some other people would so you give him unless a, it's in the royal rumble apparently true, but you give him a corporate champion okay that's a guy six five 265 pounds the rock you put a you put a bunch of heaters around him like boss man and shamrock and then like you said you keep bringing in people like Shawn michaels is now on the corporation side and now they have the six foot nine bodyguard like it 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 takes all that heat that Vince had and it just transfers it to these people. So yeah, obviously very very busy episode of Raw, but we are not done yet. So on that note, let's take it to the wrap up. Yo, I slayed them seas back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for I freak beat slam it like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Then he passed out more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. They won't let me back in. Cause yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now the rockin' Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster pluckin'. Chickens when they cluckin'. The WWF stands for women where we fuckin'. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. <laughs> <laughs> Damn right. The ratings recap. So last week, Raw defeated Nitro by the score of 5.14 to 4.16. This week, well, both companies' ratings were actually very similar. Raw won once again with a 5.16 to Nitro's 4.23. 
And funny enough, the last time Nitro actually won in the ratings was the night of October 26th when Motley Crue performed on Raw. I wonder if there's a correlation there. But anyway, Sal, here's what you could have been watching over on Nitro instead. Raven versus Scott Putsky ended in a no contest when Canyon came out and told Putsky to leave, and he then revealed that Raven was actually a spoiled rich kid growing up. In fact, Raven was pre-med at an Ivy League school and has a $3.2 million trust fund. Swerve, bro! So that guy who was crucifying people, apparently a rich kid. Hmm. After that, Eddie Guerrero versus Viano 5 also ended in a no contest when Eddie hit Viano with a frog splash, but he refused to pin him. Instead, all the other members of the LWO came out from backstage to try and recruit Viano, and it actually worked, so the LWO is now, uh, I guess, stronger. I mean, it's Viano 5. They may actually be weakening the group, but whatever. After that, Wrath defeated Al Green, not the R&B singer. Kidman defeated Rey Mysterio by disqualification to retain his Cruiserweight Championship. Barry Windham defeated Emery Hale. Norman Smiley defeated Perry Saturn. Conan defeated Stevie Ray to retain his World Television Championship. Scott Hall defeated Horace by disqualification. Scott Steiner defeated Van Hammer. And, in your main event, Goldberg versus Kevin Nash versus Bam Bam Bigelow ended in what I assume was a no contest when Scott Hall ran into the ring and started attacking Goldberg. Or maybe it was somehow a DQ in a triple threat match? Who the fuck knows? Also, better question, why didn't someone in the NWO ever just run in and attack Goldberg's opponent? I mean, Goldberg gets DQ'd and uh, boom, streak over. It almost makes too much sense. But anyway, Sal, there was something else which happened on this show, and it's a rather infamous moment. So Mean Gene Okerlund was in the ring interviewing Eric Bischoff, and Ric Flair then came out from backstage to chase Bischoff away. Flair then did one of his awesome unhinged promos where he bounced off the ropes, elbow dropped the mat for no reason, flipped out, and started yelling about what he was going to do to Bischoff during their match at Starcade in a few weeks, and the closing line of Flair's promo here actually provides a bit of foreshadowing as to where they were going with this angle. So take a listen. I'm going to reach down inside your skinny little neck, grab what heart you have, and pull it out to show the world you have no heart. All right, Tony, Larry, Mike today, gentlemen, I can't believe it. Ric Flair, totally exhausted, and perhaps for good reason. He and Bischoff head on at Starcade on the 27th on pay-per-view. Stay tuned, we've got more action right after this. This man has hurt himself. Mike, get somebody here. All right, wait, hold up now. Security. Fans Flair. Anderson has run out. This is Flair was so emotional. He, I mean, he he, he, he just spent himself in that interview and those elbow drops. Flair's in. Arn Anderson, uh, there's a sense of urgency here, fans. So stay right with us here. So yes, after Flair's manic promo, he falls to the ground and clutches the left side of his chest, which means that yes, 
they're actually doing a heart attack angle with Ric Flair, of all people. In fact, here's a quick passage from Flair's 2004 book, To Be the Man, to give you some context. Eric Bischoff and Diamond Dallas Page had a brainstorm on an airplane. When they got to the arena, I was told, you're going to have a heart attack in the ring tonight. Don't tell anyone, not the boys, not your family. Well, I had to call Beth, Flair's wife. There was no way I was going to let her watch something like that on TV and think it's real, but just about everybody else was kept in the dark. And piggybacking on that, here's also a quick excerpt from R.D. Reynolds' classic book, The Death of WCW. The most tasteless part of the whole thing was that they tried to pass it off as real backstage, once again, working the boys, and both Doug Dillinger and referee Charles Robinson were crying, thinking that he might die. Because Flair's health was supposedly in jeopardy, he didn't appear on Thunder that week. You'll never guess where Thunder emanated from. Oh yes, Charlotte, North Carolina. Oh, God. Oh, the brilliance of WCW at the time. So, Sal, two questions. Number one, does that sound like an episode of Nitro you would have wanted to watch? And number two, do you remember the Ric Flair heart attack angle? Okay, I'm going to address your first question with the question of... Should Barry Windham be winning a match in 1998? <laughs> Against Emery Hale, obviously. So, no, I would not have watched this episode of Nitro. It doesn't <laughs> sound like anything I would have watched. However, I do remember the Ric Flair heart attack angle, and it was one of the most tasteless, senseless things they ever put on Nitro at that point yeah. in the show's history. Because didn't really make any sense and i'm sorry but i didn't buy it i don't care what they did to try to make it seem real the fact that he just happened to have a heart attack in the main event segment of nitro just no right after literally saying the words i'm gonna rip out your heart and then that's the last part of his promo and then he's clutching his own heart seconds later yeah, I didn't buy it, and I thought it was really, like, stupid. So Yeah, and again, with Ric Flair, of all people, I, I think maybe they're doing this because Flair is fighting Bischoff at Starcade, so they're maybe playing it up like this is the this is a way to weaken Flair to kind of make it seem like, you know, Bischoff might have a chance. And <laughs> spoiler for Starcade, he does have a chance. But, yeah, I think maybe that was where they were going, was to try to give some sort of weakness to Flair going into into that match against Bischoff, who, again, just like Vince McMahon, is wrestling even though he's not a wrestler. So, then yeah. do what they always do and have, like, Scott Steiner take his knee out or something. There you go, right. Like, wh- why why do you have to do this elaborate... Pl- I like how DDP and Bischoff were the ones that thought this up, too. Like, yeah. again, for every good idea those two probably had, and probably 50 bad ones, and this was one of them. Yes. Absolutely. So, yeah, bad, bad idea, folks. Hard, bad idea on the heart attack angle. Spoil, spoiler alert, though, for up, an upcoming episode of Raw. Uh, the WWF is going to try to top this one with a different uh, medical scenario live on camera. And, yeah, that's, that's also – I think it may actually be worse than the heart attack. But we'll, we'll cover that pretty soon. So on that note, let's take it to the Raw synopsis. So, Sal, what were your thoughts on this episode of Monday Night Raw. I thought it was a great Raw. I mean, from the opening segment to the to the main event, I loved everything about this Raw. I really did get a hidden gem, gem here because I didn't know it was going to be this good. Uh, they packed a lot into this Raw. And a lot of memorable moments from the bloodbath to, you know, obviously the DX get 
and uh, the rock bottom on top of the hood of the Lincoln Town Car yeah. was just great raw. It was a great raw. In my I agree 100%. And one thing I think, a way I can t- I can say that I think it was for sure a great raw, because I watched the whole thing, and I didn't even realize until like well after I went back, I was like, oh, shit. Stone Cold wasn't even no, no Stone, Stone Cold. Cold. Yeah, he was he was a big part of the show because Vince was obviously you know mentioning him during the Tumblr segment. But yeah, no Stone Cold and obviously no Undertaker because he was quote unquote buried alive. But yeah, Austin was not there at all. And I actually checked the like the Cage Match .net ratings for this show, and I think this is the either the second or third highest rated show of 1998 on that website. So again, not just us fans loved this episode of Raw, and once again, no Stone Cold. So Go figure. I wonder if uh, I wonder if that was another big feather in the rock's cap that you know the rating also didn't go down at all whatsoever. It went up slightly with no Austin. So maybe that was a sign that they were kind of um, testing the waters with the rock. I'm not sure um, why Austin was absent. I know I think I'm pretty sure this is around the time where he started filming episodes of Nash Bridges, if you remember that. So yeah. I'm not sure if that was the reason for his absence here on this show, but obviously you know they they only tip- typically keep him off of Raw for you know really good reasons. So, yeah, I, I, I'm going to guess that was the reason. But, again, Austin's absence did not hurt the overall product of the show. They had so much craziness. And, again, that's pretty much the calling card of any of these really good Raw episodes is that it's just wall-to-wall bonkers in a very entertaining way. So, yeah, the bloodbath, Mark Henry's promo, the rock bottom yep. on the town car, Kane being hauled off during a commercial break, the, corpor- yep. the corporation segment, the corporation parody. It was really good stuff. And again, most of the time, matches on Raw are not of very high quality, but the main event, Rock and Triple H, and also, again, the tag title match, I thought was really enjoyable, too. Thumb, thumbs up all the way around. Big thumbs up for uh, for this episode of Raw. And I, like you, did not notice Austin was not on the episode because they did a good job of camouflaging it. Right. Austin was in the opening, you know, kind of the cold open hype video, and then... He was not in the segment with the Tumblr, but he was mentioned enough that you literally shut off Raw and was like, oh, shit, I didn't even see Steve Austin because it just went right over your head. They did a good job of, like, kind of still keeping him part of the story and and yet hiding the fact that he wasn't there. Right. And, And again, without Austin, the crowd still hot as hell the entire night, even though they weren't getting Stone Cold. So, yeah. Once again, tip of the cap to the Tacoma fans and tip of the cap to uh, to the WWF for putting on a damn fine show. I would say absolutely highest recommendation to go check out this show. Don't check out Rock Bottom, but do check out The Raw after Rock Bottom. Unless you want to see Deborah, and in that case, do check out Rock Bottom. Oh, fair point, fair point, yeah. <laughs> you, you do see a fair a fair portion of Deborah on, on Rock Bottom. You see her bottom on Rock Bottom. <laughs> nice. But yeah, so do you have anything else to add about uh, Raw? No, like I said, it was a good one, man. So it's very interesting seeing uh, them head into the 1999 Royal Rumble. I think you are in for a treat. Absolutely. Well, on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up then. So as always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugebex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast 
and give you full credit for doing so. And also, of course, now don't forget Patreon. I'm going to put the link in the episode description. If you want to support the show, Patreon is the best way of doing it. All the money will go directly back in to the podcast. And so before we wrap up, Sal, would you care to remind the fans of the Raw Attitude Podcast where they can find you outside of this fine show? Well, well, my show is WrestleMania Salvation. Your show is, is the Raw Attitude Podcast. But I would be happy oh, to did remind... I, did I, just, did I say yes. the wrong thing? That's okay. Damn. I would be happy to remind the fans that they can follow me at WrestleMania Sal and check out the Rundown Podcast where on that feed you will get WrestleMania Salvation. In addition, you will also get the Nitromania Podcast that Adam, who so graciously co-hosted last episode is uh, hosting as he goes through Nitro from beginning to end. Good luck to him. And, <laughs> and I've been on that show, down- too. Say that again. Oh, I was saying I've been on that show, too. Yes, you have. And the Rundown Wrestling Podcast also features the Rundown Wrestling Podcast, which is the flagship show where they go through the weekly events of the WWF. Uh, every Wednesday night they record, I believe, every Thursday the episode comes out. Jason and Troy do a great job. Uh, sometimes I guest on there. I was actually a guest on there last week. You to were? Discuss, uh, to discuss Broken Matt Hardy and the ultimate deletion, which was Oof. a lot of fun. How, how far he has come since being on uh, the Sunday Night Heat pre-show on Rock Bottom. Took a long, long time. <laughs> you did. <laughs> did you enjoy that, by the way, the final deletion that was on Raw this past uh, Monday? I did. I did. Uh, I, I really did, but... Um, I, I liked it from when it was in its TNA days a year or so ago, too. So right. I was glad that they finally did it on Raw. And I, I think for everybody who, who might be critical of it, you got to understand not to take it too seriously. It's supposed yeah. to be kind of like a funny gag, like a ha-ha moment. Yeah. And, and I was just kind of surprised they put it on last. I mean, I think it deserved it, you know? Yeah. Also, I'm excited to see Bray Wyatt come back with, like, a character change or, like, a gimmick tweak. Because, oh, you, th- uh, you think that's what's going to happen? Yeah, he got tossed into the quote-unquote lake of reincarnation, and historically, anybody who gets tossed in there definitely comes back uh, a little bit different when they do eventually come back. Oh, shit. Well, I I'll, I look forward to him coming back and being the uh, token dancing fat guy now. <laughs> wouldn't put it past him. I wouldn't put it past Vince at all. That's a good point. Well, anyway, I have nothing further to add about this episode, so... As is the custom whenever a guest host joins the Raw Attitude Podcast, I must ask, is there a particular clip that you would like me to play at the end of this episode? Because, as promised, I will, of course, play the clip of the first time The Rock imitated other wrestlers' catchphrases from Capital Carnage last week. And as a side note, that is also the debut of him doing the If You Smell La 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 with the tongue as well. But I will also play another clip if you would like me to do so. Yeah, so originally I was going to have you play the clip where Vince is training with his son Shane. Mm. But that's actually coming up in your timeline in a little bit, so I don't want to spoil that one just yet. Thank you. Instead, I would request a clip from one of my favorite rock promos. This is a couple years later. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can find it on YouTube. It's December 4th, 2000. And basically, it's the Raw before Armageddon. Where... <laughs> I, I know, I know exactly what you're talking yes. about. Yeah, Rock, Rock uh, runs down all of his opponents coming up at Hell in the Cell uh, with Kevin Kelly interviewing him. It is hilarious. Does he happen to call Kevin Kelly a hermaphrodite in that promo by any chance? Oh, I believe he calls him a lot of things. In that of promo. of course. <laughs> 
Fantastic. Well, then, I'll put that in there as well if I can find it, which I'm sure I will be able to. So enjoy those clips. And again, thank you, Sal, for coming on the show. Do you think you'd like to do it again at uh, some point? Yeah, I had a lot of fun, man. This was great. Fantastic. So enjoy those clips and enjoy WrestleMania Salvation, of course. And I will catch you next time. He plans on laying a smackdown on that bony X-Pac right on his bony little candy ass. And then after it's all said and done, the millions and millions of The Rock's fans are through chanting his name. All the corporate smoke has cleared. X-Pac will make sure he knew his damn role. So X-Pac, what you gonna do when the 24... Oh, that's it. That's the bottom line, because... To be the man, woo, you gotta... I am. The best there is, the best... That's definitely not it. This is it. The most electrifying line in sports entertainment today. If you smell... Ow! What the rock is cooking. Rock, we are less than a week away from one of the biggest challenges of your career. Competing for the WWF title in a match you've never competed in before. A Hell in a Cell match where you and five other men Finally, The Rock has come back to New Jersey. Just as sure as for the very first time, Kevin Kelly, The Rock, stood right in this arena and called you an ugly hermaphrodite. It's as sure as this Sunday night at Armageddon, The Rock will be in hell in a cell. This is going to be the most brutal match The Rock has ever been in. The dangerousest match The Rock has ever been in. The Hell in the Cell. And it doesn't matter, Kevin Kelly, what you call it. Whether it's called a Hell in a Cell, a Rage in a Cage, Penis in Uranus, the only thing that matters is that The Rock is going in this Sunday night to do exactly what he does best, lay it to smack it down, and get back The Rock's WWF title. And the fact of the matter is this, is that The Rock knows this Sunday night he has his work cut out for him. The Rock knows he's got five other guys he's got to compete with. And even if The Rock has got to beat Kurt Angle, which means I'm going to drink a big glass of milk, eat some chocolate chip cookies, and then maybe I'll take three Viagra. Or maybe The Rock is going to face Rikishi. Beat Rikishi. I did it. For the rock. I did it for the people. I did it. I did, uh, shut your mouth, you thong wearing fatty. Or maybe even the rock has got to beat the Undertaker, the American badass. Beat him so bad that one more time he'll raise up. Rest in peace. Or maybe The Rock has got to beat Triple H himself, which means uh, he's got to beat the game uh, in the middle of the ring. Uh, and he has a $2 f- 
for life! Oh, my. I can't believe he's saying this. Stephanie is not a... And there's one left. Or maybe The Rock has got a beat. Stone Cold Steve Austin, which means I gotta get in my, I gotta get in my pickup truck, drink some Steve Weisers, listen to some Backstreet Boys. What? Backstreet Boys? And that's the bottom line, cause the great one said so. Backstreet Boys? Oh, Fridge Boys, baby, but... And one more thing, this Sunday night at Armageddon, The Rock is going to do all he can to win the WWF title. If you smell what The Rock is cooking. <laughs>